Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are... All right, folks, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, and I'm your host, Devin Palou, and we just kind of going to jump right into it, because we've got a lot on the on this show today, and uh, I think it'll be a, a show that is definitely worth doing. Uh, it's, you know, we normally spend our time looking at uh, atheism or uh, the cults and world religions. Today, we're, we're going to do a show with uh, Believing Brothers people that are, are Christians, and some would say, well, you know, why would you do that? Why why do a uh, dialogue or debate uh, with amongst believers on these issues? And one of the areas we have not done a lot of shows on is the area of apologetic methodologies. And among believers, there's strong views on both sides uh, of exactly how apologetics should be done. And so... Uh, I reached out to my friend uh, Nathan Taylor, who's a graduate of Biola University, and he's been on the show uh, a few times, and I was also able to get a hold of Cy Ten Bruggenkees, I think that's how you say it, he'll correct me if I'm wrong, who's really, uh, a lot of people really look up to him and, and look at him as an authority <clears throat> on presuppositional apologetics. So I thought it'd be good to get both of these guys on who... Uh, are both way more intelligent than me, and just kind of have a discussion, a friendly discussion about um, maybe some of the differences between different apologetic methodologies. So let me introduce uh, first Cy. Uh, He lives in Ontario, Canada. He's a member of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in Canada. Uh, He's studied presuppositional apologetics uh, from many resources, uh, most notably, lectures by the late Greg Bonson. Uh, in June of 2006, I published his website. And as of May 2008, he has been teaching apologetics full-time. Uh, in April 2013, I released the film How to Answer a Fool. Uh, and in February 2015, released the film Debating Dillahunty. And we'll give you guys the website where you can go to uh, check that out. Uh, his uh, the person we're going to be joined with is uh, a, an ap- Christian apologist and a philosopher, uh, Nathaniel Taylor. He's a graduate of Biola, uh, also Westminster Theological Seminary and Calvin School of Theology, has an MA in philosophy. 
Uh, he's a pastor at the Bridge Church in Simpsonville, which is another uh, ARP church. Um, and uh, <clears throat> gentlemen, both uh, glad to have both you guys with us today. Glad to it's be great here. to be here. Yeah. Um, is it? Is it? Uh, do you guys mind if I start by playing the trailer to the How to Answer a Fool? Up the side. Be my guest. That's fine with me. Okay, I'll get her pulled up here, and I, I figure this would be just uh, a way to get people who are not really familiar, maybe with presuppositional apologetics, uh, kind of exactly what it is, and um, see it in action. So, the fool has said in his heart, "There is no God." Now, imagine somebody came up to you and said, "I don't believe in words." You'd think that he was a fool. You wouldn't pull out a dictionary and give him evidence, and you wouldn't believe him. Somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. We don't think they're a fool. We give them evidence, and we believe them. When the Bible calls them fools, something has gone wrong. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Because what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And since the creation of the world, God's invisible quality, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, according to that verse, who needs to prove that God exists? We all want Nobody. I think I'm bringing them to Christ. I think I'm exposing the folly of denying Christ. Okay, so you're judging people, is what you're saying. Is it wrong to judge, sir? Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, only God, God, only God, only God, God is the final judge, so not you. Judge? Of course. So what I'm doing is wrong. Yes, 100%. Stop judging me, sir. <laughs> okay. How do you know your reasoning's valid? I don't. That's right. So if you don't know your reasoning's valid, would it not follow that you can't know anything to be true? Yes. Okay, so that's the problem. You could be wrong about everything you claim to know. It follows that you know nothing. Yes. Oh, but absolutely. the problem is you do know things. Well, I don't think so. The only well, thing I do know is that I know nothing. You know that? Yeah. That's two. I am always open to everything. Are you I, open to the fact that child molestation might be right? Yeah. You're open to that? that, yeah, that sure. So the child molestation could be right? It could be. You want to get that on camera, guys? <laughs> Anybody at home, never hire him as a babysitter. <laughs> I live in the world of I don't know. That's right. That, you know that you live in that world. I know for a fact I live in that world. See, now that's not I, a world of I don't know. That's it. I know I live in that world. See, that's contradictory. It is contradictory. That's the reality. You did. Uh, <laughs> all right. That's a good point. Um, all right, and that is the trailer on how to answer a fool. And you get to see Cy uh, do a lot of uh, really good interaction uh, with several atheists and uh definitely uh, recommend people check that out. So uh, I guess maybe we could just start by talking about, um, I guess, our, our approach in apologetic uh, methodology. Sai, do you want to talk for a couple minutes about uh, 
kind of the role you see in apologetics and how properly it is to to use it? Yeah, sure. Um, as uh, in your introduction, you mentioned that uh, almost eight years that I've been doing this full time now. And I've always had a desire to do apologetics, to share my faith with unbelievers and to give a reasoned defense of what I believe. And most of my life I've discovered I was doing it wrong. And I have a heart um, for unbelievers. I've, I, you know, I want to reach them. I want to speak truthfully to them. And um, I actually looked out in the world what was going on. And by the grace of God, I was introduced to uh, what's known as presuppositional apologetics. And it was through a, a debate. Um, it was the Bonson-Stein debate, uh, Dr. Greg Bonson, Christian, against uh, Dr. Gordon Stein. And it, and it really opened my eyes to what you know I would call a biblical apologetic. Now, one thing I want to say on the outset I'm not beholden to terms. I think, you know, the method that I think is the biblical method would be closely closest uh, related to what you would call presuppositional apologetics, but it's my goal and desire to reach the lost. And what I came to understand is, and the best way for me to describe the differences is to maybe uh, describe what an evidential apologetics is or does. I say, where do you hear the term evidence most often out in the world? You hear that in the court of law. In the court of law, who do you present evidence to? You present evidence to the judge and the jury. Now, if somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God, and you present them with evidences, who are you saying is the judge and jury? You're saying that they are the judge and jury, and that the Lord of glory, which seat does he occupy in that courtroom? We put him in the criminal's box. So we elevate the unbeliever to the position of judge, and we put God in the criminal's box. Now, God has given us wonderful evidences you know, of his existence. He's given us great evidence. So we can win that argument with the unbeliever. We can acquit God. But the problem is that we are in the unbeliever's blasphemous courtroom and we're elevating them to the position of judge. So even if we win that argument, they can say, yes, you've convinced me based on your, based on, you know, my, my demand for proof. You've convinced me that God exists. The problem is that mo- very often they're still in the judge's seat. So scripture, and, um, and Nate agrees with this because I've, I've read some of his writing on it, in Romans 1, clearly states, and I, I would say throughout Scripture, that everyone knows that God exists. So rather than put them in the judge's seat, I put, you know, I show them that God is the one who's in the judge's seat, and that these people really do know that God exists. And I think we're going to get into it um, as we go along, too. But what, what I found is that most of those other arguments, first of all, they deny what Scripture says, that God is the judge, that everyone knows that he exists, and it reduces him to a probability. And I think that's probably my biggest objection to the to other forms of apologetics is these types of arguments that we use they don't argue for the certain god of scripture and they like i said they reduce god to a probabilistic argument and you know we can get into those arguments how they look and and why they reduce god to a probability so i'm a presuppositionalist and basically when i talk to the unbeliever i assume that scripture is true scripture says that everyone knows that god exists and that those who deny him are merely suppressing the truth and unrighteousness so what i try to do when i engage them is expose the fact that they're suppressing the truth. Now, will they be able to see that? Of course not, because we all agree and we all believe that the power of conversion is, is strictly by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not a silver bullet, but I think that it's more consistent with Scripture to assume that the unbeliever knows that God exists and to argue accordingly. Okay, wonderful, Sai. Thank you for, for laying that out. I think that's very clear. Um, if I could just ask one question. Uh, when you said that, um, you had been doing a different kind of apologetics, but it was wrong. Right. When you say wrong, do you mean that you don't think the arguments work, or are you saying that Christians should not um, engage in that kind of a method uh, because of um, I don't know, a biblical prescription not to? Right. Well, I would say that many methodologies work. 
but the work is done by the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm sure that during the Crusades, when people used weapons, that, that worked in conversion. But my objection to it is that I don't believe that it's biblical. I don't believe that it's representing the God of the Bible. And that is my objection. Now, now, the thing is, people have told me that you know they can use these arguments in a way that does not deny what Scripture says, upholds the fact that the unbeliever knows that God exists. And I say, fantastic. I'm not opposed to that. I've just never heard it. So when somebody says to me, no, I can formulate this argument, even Bonson talked about that, that he's reformulated some of the arguments, probably way over my head, but my concern is reaching the lost. And I want to know how these arguments look when you reach the lost that does not deny what Scripture says about who God is and about his position and about whether or not the unbeliever knows that God exists. So, you know, maybe this will be the first time that I actually hear those arguments presented in a way, because what I tell people is, you know, I want to use them. If there is an argument out there that honors God, that uses these evidences, that uses this type of argumentation, that does not deny what Scripture says, I'm all ears. Because I want, I'm not concerned, like I say, about titles. I'm not concerned about names. I'm concerned about reaching the lost for the Lord that I adore. Okay. Lastly, let me ask you this, and this this is not a gotcha question. I seriously, I, I really want your, your opinion on this. So someone like uh, William Lane Craig, Norm Geisler, uh, you know, the typical classical guys, would you say right. that they're in sin when they give these arguments as proof, or would you just say that they're in error? Um, I would, the thing is, I get myself into a lot of trouble saying stuff like this. I, I would say that this, let me put it this way, you know, to get out from under that rock. When I was doing it that way, I think I was sinning. Okay. Now, whether they are not, I think if it's a sin, it's a sin of omission. I don't think that they're outright going uh, out, you know, to, to preach something that's that's uh, intentionally in error. But when I was doing it, I right. think it was sinful. It was a sin. It was that one that I was unaware of, but I do believe it was sinful. Okay, great. Thank you, Cy. Uh, Nate, go ahead and, and talk a couple minutes here about your view of apologetic methodology. I know you've got training under guys like Dr. Craig and, and Moreland and that, so sure, take a, sure. a few minutes. Well, yeah, so, I mean, before all that, you know, going to, you know, Taliban and learning under Moreland and uh, hearing about classical arguments, I actually became a Christian by listening to the great debate, uh, Greg Bonson versus Gordon Stein, and um, I was an agnostic. I um, doubted God's existence and had um, severe spiritual problems, um, but God, by his grace, uh, used that debate to, to bring me into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that was really, really cool for me. Um, and so I, I, I find that transcendental arguments are the sort of arguments that get to the heart and soul of the issue. They uh, really convicted my heart, um, and so I, I'm a big Greg Bonson fan. Uh, like Cy, I've listened to probably so many Bonson lectures that uh, pretty nauseating. I, I think I listened to a great debate about uh, 200 times at least. I mean, I, I love that stuff. Um, I endorse the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, I don't take any exception to it. But I would say after studying philosophy and reading my Bible and kind of putting this all together, that now I would say I'm a modified presuppositionalist, which means I'm kind of in the vein of Frame and James and John Frame and James Anderson. Um, I affirm that Christianity is the only rational worldview, and um, the fact that the Christian God exists, I would say that's a necessary truth. It couldn't be false. It's a necessary truth, metaphysically speaking. Um, there's no possible world in which the Christian God does not exist. Um, so I affirm those things. I, I, the issue why I, I found classical apologetics to be 
are good is I think they're part of general general revelation, and I'll get into that um, in a second. But um, I would also say that another issue with um, with the presuppositional method, I'm still a presuppositional, it's a modified form. I use transcendental arguments primarily, and I mix it in with uh, other other articles of general special general revelation. Um, you know, like the ontological, cosmological, um, and the argument from consciousness. So I utilize those arguments along with transcendental arguments. But I affirm all of the arguments that Bonson used uh, from logic and morality and the uniformity of nature. Uh, I, I just, uh, the big issue is that Christianity problem was quite an issue, and so I, I don't uh, hold to the impossibility of the contrary for the Christian worldview, um, although I do think it's the only rational worldview. All of the worldviews are irrational and um, and they have no warrant to them. Um, but so as for the classical arguments, I would say they are not natural theology. Um, natural theology in, in just reform camps is perceived as a boo-boo or a negative, you know, naughty word, and I, I think there's every right for that because how it's viewed theologically is that natural theology is sort of like man just kind of making his man-made arguments and trying to grasp up to God. It sounds very Pelagian, but I wouldn't want to say that. I, I would affirm with the, what the Westminster Confession says, that if God did not condescend, have a voluntary condescension to us, we would know nothing of God. And so uh, I view the classical arguments as um, articles of general revelation. And so I would say we get truths about general revelation like we get truths of special revelation by reason and interpretation. I know the Trinity by uh, reasoning through the scriptures, by good and necessary inference. And so by good and necessary inference from the things that have been made um, and on my conscience, I infer that God exists. And not only that, but I would say all men know that God exists prior to the inference. So every argument presupposes, I believe, the Christian God. Um, And so um, typically when people deny the classical arguments, um, I, I would view that as actually them denying a part of general revelation that God has given to us to use and to glorify him and honor him. So I do think that's an issue, and I do think I, I do hold them as working and as specific truths about God. And I actually believe the classical arguments can actually help out the, the, the issue in the, with the Christianity problem and the issues with, with presuppositional arguments. I don't think that you can give... I don't think any specific transcendental argument for the existence of God can prove the Trinity. Um, this was an issue with the Christianity problem. Why can't it be four members and five members? I mean, the uniformity of nature and the law, argument from the laws of logic and morality simply do not prove a triune God. And so um, I actually use these other articles of general revelation to specify and narrow it down to Christianity. I use Anselm's ontological argument and show that there's a greatest possible being, and I infer attributes. Uh, from uh, him being the greatest possible being, namely that he's uh, three three persons. So I think you can do this, and you know, obviously, before doing all of this, I know that Christianity is true, and so there's a difference between knowing something is true, which I all I, all men know that the Christian God exists, it's very clear in Romans one, but um, in terms of showing Christianity true, which is what um, uh, you know, Christianity, which is what apologetics is engaged in, that um, is what. I, I would do, and uh, I, I, I don't know if I have time to go over the biblical reasons why I affirm general revelation and why I affirm these arguments being biblical, but uh, I don't want to take up too much of my time and uh, be rude here. Yeah, no, that's that's good. Uh, have, Cy, would you would you like to just maybe have it, you and Nate have a discussion here for a bit on, on what he said and, 
And uh, Nate, you could maybe ask some questions that Zayed said. And yeah, I think that um, um, some of the stuff that he brought up are actually some concerns that I had with the apologetic as well, because I've heard I think it was Michael Butler talking about Christianity, and he believed that the transcendental argument could provide a philosophical refutation of Christianity, and I don't think it can. And I have okay. a friend, um, a good friend of mine, who actually um, he wrote against uh, Greg Bonson. Um, for his uh, view of the impossibility of the contrary. He says, because you cannot prove the impossibility of the contrary with a strict tag. And um, I shared with him, because, I mean, like yourself, I've listened to hundreds of hours of Greg Bonson. I've heard it maybe once or twice where he's actually talked about this. And this was, he, he was at a university, and somebody hmm. asked him, how do we know that the contrary is impossible? And um, Greg Bonson said, because the Bible tells us. He didn't right. say it was a philosophical, and that's what I understood underlying in all his argumentation. Now, that becomes more Clarkian. I think it becomes more fideistic, but that's, I think, what I lean to as well, is that we know the contrary is impossible because that's what the Bible says. And so rather than go to a philosophical proof of God, I, I think that would be going the wrong way, because now what we're doing is that we're believing the unbeliever when they say they don't believe in God, and here, now let me give you some kind of argumentation to try and get to that God. But like I say, we're at the beginning of our conversation, so maybe that's uh, sparked something for you. Sure, sure. And, you know, uh, I, I think you've taken, I think you've interpreted Bunsen right there. I, I mean, I, I, I take that, um, I think part of the task of apologetics is showing Christianity true. Um, and while I know it's true by the inner testament of the Holy Spirit, I think that's very clear when I read the Bible, I know this is God speaking to me. Um, I, I would say that I am concerned with showing rationally that Christianity is, is true um, because I believe the Bible requires that of me and teaches of me to do that. So I, I you know, um, I, I, if we get into biblical evidence, we can do that. I have um, right. some texts here we can discuss and kind of uh, look at those. But um, yeah, you know, the, the issue is a bunch, and yeah, it did end up saying, hey, we you know because the Bible says it, and uh, at that point, you know, it, it it sort of seems inconsistent with him saying, well, I have a proof for God's existence. I can prove the Christian God. Well, at that point, it's not very, I mean, as much as I love Bonson, I mean, he's been a, a, he's a hero of mine still to this day. Um, I don't agree with him on theonomy, though I like I, I like his eschatology, all right. Um, but uh, he's been a hero of mine to this day, and, you know, you know, just when he says it's a proof for Christianity, I'm thinking, well, it doesn't really seem like a proof anymore. It just sounds like um, an assertion, which is true, that, hey, the Bible says Christianity's true. Hey, Christianity's true. No doubt about that. I, I, I affirm that. But uh, in terms of the apologetic method and showing uh, and interacting and uh, providing a reason and setting apart Christ in our hearts, uh, that's, that's been a concern to me, and that's why, as an, as an apologist, I'm interested in the showing part. I'm interested in that. And right. I, by the way, I, I share the burden and heart for the lost. Obviously, I preach the gospel every Sunday. Uh, you know, I, I feel called to the ministry. So, uh, you know, and I, I do a lot of evangelism, though I, I don't, I don't, I don't put them on YouTube, so you, you know, people wouldn't know about it. But, um, you know, so I, I do have that passion. So, I mean, I've used these arguments and these things to bring people uh, to a saving relationship with Christ and. It has been, certainly been helpful. Obviously, they're merely instruments, and the Holy Spirit is the ultimate cause of their conversion. Right. Um, well, I I would actually agree with you that um, the transcendental, like I don't even use the bare bones transcendental argument. You know, I'm a presuppositionist, but what I say the proof is that negation of the argument reduces one's worldview to absurdity. So I make the claim that God exists, that everyone knows it. 
and the proof is that the reduction to absurdity of anybody who rejects it. But you talked about showing rationally that God exists using yeah. different form, different types of arguments. And my problem with that is that when you do that, you are granting rationality to the unbeliever. So I think that doing that comes at a very high cost, because if you end up proving God, then you'll say, well, this standard of proof that I'm using to prove God is of a higher epistemic authority than God himself. So I say, look, even to use that type of argumentation, even to formulate those arguments, you're already boring from God. So let's say I use one of those arguments with an unbeliever, and I convince them that God exists using that argument. Then he could say, well, I didn't need God to get there. And that is my difficulty with it. And in a, in a while, maybe we could do some role-playing, because I want to know how that looks on the street in a way that's consistent with Scripture. Sure. Um, yeah, well, I'm thinking here, so by that logic, then, I'm just thinking through this. So if you're saying that a classical apologetics that grants the unbeliever, uh, you know, that he, he can reason with you, I mean, the transcendental arguments that Bonson offered, I mean, there's, there's premises and, you know, leads to conclusion. I mean, it's an argument. It's evidence for God's existence. Uh, right. as, as, as that's how we use evidence in the philosophical jargon and not how we use evidence with evidentialists and so on. But, I mean, it is an internalist, you know, ev- it's evidential argument. It, it, it shows that God exists. So I, I guess for me it's always been difficult to see, okay, why are transcendental arguments okay? I mean, they, obviously we're granting the unbeliever can reason. He's made in God's image. Um, though he's corrupted, he's, he, he still knows that God exists and has, uh, cognitive faculties, which produce mostly true beliefs. Um, so, I mean, I guess when we say that, okay, don't use classical arguments, why can't we say the same thing with transcendental arguments? In other words, why doesn't this argument also cancel out transcendental arguments? But I'm curious to know. Yeah, that's a good point. Like I said, I do not use a bare-bones transcendental argument. But what uh, okay. I would say is that even in the transcendental argument, the first premise is God. It's the existence of God. See, so when you argue, argue transcendentally, you presuppose God and you conclude God, whereas the other arguments merely conclude God. And that is my issue. I say any argument that does not presuppose God is not a biblical or Christian argument. I say that because what you presuppose then is human autonomy to try and include that, hum- that humans are not autonomous. So I say even in, in what I would say I would give a, a, a modified tag, but I say when you do that, you're presupposing that you know and that they know that God exists, and you're not denying that fact. And I, I say that's the difference. Well, yeah, so so I'm thinking here, So, but it, as the apologetic shows, all arguments presuppose God's existence. Um, well, I would say, yeah, ultimately they do, but some in yeah. their formulation deny that God exists. For example, somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. Well, here, let me give you an argument to conclude that God exists. I say, then we're denying the fact that they know that God exists. Of course, even the communication presupposes God, but that's right. on the surface of it. You know, I, you know, deep down, of course, it presupposes God, but on the surface, I would say it, it denies God. It affirms the unbeliever when they say, okay, I really don't know that God exists. Let me show you an argument that concludes God instead of saying, no, 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 you do know that God exists, and I'm going to expose that, you know, that you can't even reason about argumentation. You can't even argue unless you start with the God of the Bible. Okay, okay. It's a couple of things. I mean, the, the arguments uh, in the syllogistic forum that's been constructed by Anderson start off with um, a necessary feature of human experience, and they, and they move to the existence of God and how they're formulated there, and that's that's how the standard arguments are formulated by Butler and, you know, obviously endorsed by Bonson um, when he when he taught it in the Transcendental Argument series. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a part of it. Um, but when an unbeliever goes up to me and says, I don't believe in God, and I'm like, well, <laughs> you were like me. You were lying to yourself and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And here's how this my apologetic would play in there. I would say, 
Well, I, I'm, I'm going to use classical and uh, transcendental arguments to show that um, you're going to contradict yourself and not make sense out of obvious things, and that that's going to expose and take off the mask that you're being intellectually dishonest and you're um, dishonoring God. And so uh, I, I, would, I wouldn't say, oh, hey, you don't believe in God. Well, let me give you evidence because you're just obviously neutral and open-minded. Let me just throw some evidence at you. I, I, would, I don't approach people that way. That would be unbiblical and, and surely wrong. But I, I, I do, I do, uh, I would would provide evidence such as classical arguments and uh, like the ontological argument. I would say, well, you know, when you say God doesn't exist, uh, you know it, and um, you're actually, according to this argument, uttering a contradiction because God is the greatest possible being, and as such, He, he has to exist given the, the structure of the ontological argument. So you're actually uttering a contradiction. I can show you that, and um, I've actually had an unbeliever. Um, I gave it was a, he was actually a philosopher at a university campus, and. Um, Give him the ontological argument, and he's like, you know, yeah, I don't really believe this atheist thing. I just do it for show. <laughs> right. He went down and admitted that to me. It's like, well, yeah, I know the Bible says you hate God, and that's why you do that, you know? So um, well, here's that, that's, how, here's, that's yeah. how I see it. Yeah. Right, but here's another one of my issues with something like the ontological argument. It doesn't show the God of Christianity. It shows some generic God. And then from that point, we're going to further use your autonomous reasoning to try and conclude the God of the Bible. So, I mean, you would agree that the ontological argument does not show necessarily the God of Christianity, right? Well, believe it or not, I would actually say the ontological argument. Uh, actually, I think there are steps and moves once you get the greatest possible being there. I think the only being who is the greatest possible being is the, is the God of Christianity. So I would actually say that the ontological argument more specifically shows the Christian God than the, actually the transcendental argument for logic. And, but not and, to uh, the unformed. Not, not oh, to the um, well, I, I I would say if they're being if, if they're being consistent, and of course unbelievers always be consistent, whether you give them a transcendental argument, ontological argument, or cosmological argument. Right, but the problem is you're not starting with the God of Scripture. You're starting with some kind of argument, and then the, the Muslim can say ontological argument. You know, you're right; it proves Allah. Yeah, and, and so I would take them through steps to show them how that's actually an inconsistent assertion. And I, I guess at that point, you know, this, this sort of, I obviously think it's the argument starts with God's existence because every argument, uh, according to the presuppositionalist, starts with God's existence because you couldn't do logic without God's existence. And even when you do prove that God of logic, even as Greg Welty uh, concedes in his recent article, it doesn't uh, show specifically Trinitarian theism. But I think with the ontological argument going through steps and being consistent, um, and using intuitive principles, which, you know, by the way, the, the transcendental argument uses these principles too, um, that you can show that I think that Trinitarian theism is um, the correct position to hold. Um, just out of curiosity, because uh, some names came up and I've heard some troubling things from them. Like, I'm sure you've seen a clip with um, William A. Craig and Lawrence Krauss when he's asked mm. if he's certain that God exists, and he says, no. Now, um, people have, of course, people who are big fans of William Lane Craig just try to say that he was talking about some kind of a logical argumentation. But on the surface of it, it looks like he is not epistemically certain that God exists. Now, I'm just curious, what is your view on that? Do you believe he said that, and do you, is that your view? Well, yeah, so um, I love William Lane Craig. I listen to a lot of his debates. Um, I, I respect him greatly, his intellect. I disagree with him on a bunch of things. Um, I believe him to be a brother in, brother in Christ, uh, regenerate and saved, though I don't like uh, certain parts of the soteriology, but uh, he is a great guy, godly man, but I do think he's wrong about saying that. I think, um, I mean, I think God's existence is obvious, 
uh, unmistakable. But he would say that though too in his in his in his book on the five views of apologetics. He says God's existence is unmistakable. So, um, you know, at that point, I guess he's saying that he's using it in a very narrow sense, like philosophical certainty. So let me give you an example. I know that my hand, <laughs> I have a right hand, right? I know that. I mean, I know that. I, I'm, but I'm more certain of Christianity than I have a right hand. But I would say I'm, I, in a practical sense, I'm certain. But there are these weird sense which philosophers talk about philosophical certainty. Um, you know, this being this very Cartesian, infallibilistic view of certainty. And I take that quote to be Craig saying that he thinks it's obvious that Christianity is true, but he doesn't think it meets this strange, skeptical Cartesian standard of certainty, uh, as I understand it. But my own view is, I even think Christianity um, and God's existence meets that infallible, uh, uh, you know, it, I think, it, I know it infallibly. I know Christianity is true infallibly. Um, well, the great truths of the gospel, I don't know that infant baptism is true infallibly, or Calvinism, um, but I would say justification by faith, and the great truths of the gospel, what I take to be, uh, I know those infallibly. But uh, I don't think that a person needs to be Christian to affirm that, uh, I know I've gone back and forth on that myself, uh, but um, I think that, uh, yes, yeah, that, you know, Craig is a, a Christian brother, and I think that he was wrong in saying that, but I, I do think that there are p- plenty of Christians that hold that. Um, I don't think the Bible gives a precise sense of the sort of Cartesian, you know, certainty and teaches it. I just know in my own experience that uh, Christianity, um, when I read the Bible, uh, seems to be the most certain thing there is. I mean, it's very, very certain to me. Right now, and would you say that the classical arguments prove in, uh, in fa- prove Christianity infallibly, like the Christian um, God well, infallibly? Well, yeah. So I would say, just like special, like I'm not able to show from special revelation. I'm going to answer your question. It sounds like I'm not, but I'm actually going to answer. No, no, I'm going to use an analogy. Yeah. Um, so I, just like special revelation, I can't show infallibly that you know infant baptism is true. It's still beneficial for me to read through the Bible and put things together and say, oh, the covenant, look, it's baptism is true, kind of thing. And so um, I would say the same is true of general revelation. Um, uh, you know, I think the transcendental arguments are the most certain things that show that, that you know, uh, theism is true from the transcendental arguments. And I think the classical arguments, um, especially the ontological and the argument from consciousness and so on, um, those arguments specify it a bit. They specify it and make it, uh, more specifically shows the Christian God to be the the only rational position to hold, the only rational uh, God to be believed in. Um, and so, um, for, from my vantage point, then, yeah, they, they are probabilistic. Um, the ontological argument, I I doubt that is probabilistic. Uh, if you couple that with a moral argument, I think you can know that, know that that's probably a bit more infallible. So, that's what I would take for that. But, but when you're talking about the cosmological argument, the Kalam, the uh, modal cosmological argument from contingency, and the argument from consciousness, I think those are, uh, they don't yield an infallible conclusion. So, yes, I would agree with that. But the same is true of special revelation. Um, we use reasoning and our minds to interpret the Bible and, and come to truths of special revelation, like infant baptism and uh, post-millennialism or amillennialism, depending on what view you hold. Um, and covenant theology, but those are, those are not certain, you know, that certain, but we, we certainly know them, and we certainly use our reasoning to come to those conclusions of special revelation. So I would say the same thing is true of uh, general revelation and the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and so on. 
Yeah, I would say that, that my position on baptism, and of course we're both paedo-baptists being uh, members of the ARP, is different yeah. than my view on the existence of God. Like, I'm not epistemically certain of the baptist of the baptism position. However, I am epistemically right. certain of the existence of God. Now, just one more thing which might also help clear it. I'm sure that you've uh, listened to the um, Bonson-Spruill exchange. Yes, yeah. Okay, now, now their difference seemed to focus on Romans chapter 1. And right. their difference of the knowledge of God that everyone has, Bonson will say it was immediate, and Sproul will say uh-huh. it was immediate. Now, for the people who are listening, I'll explain what that means, because sometimes we use terms that you know, are, are you know, way above my head. I, I never knew there was such a thing as immediate knowledge. But the way that Bonson explained it, he says, your wife walked into the room, you don't say, um, okay, there's a woman, she's about 5'7", that's her hair, those are her eyes, that's her nose, that's my wife. See, then you're mediating the information to conclude that that's your wife. Your wife walks in the room and you say, oh, there's my wife. You know immediately. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because there is some mediation, but it's just instant. Now, Bonson believes that our knowledge of God, as said in Romans 1, is immediate. And I'd say that's why he would say that's why we're without excuse. Whereas Sproul would argue that our knowledge of God in Romans 1 is immediate. And I, I would, that's the main difference of those camps. I'm just curious as to which camp you find yourself in. Right. Well, I agree with my, my good friend, um, and you know, he, he was he instructed me in theology, and I'm very grateful for that. I agree with Michael Horton uh, on that, and I would say both immediate and immediate. And Francis Turretin held that position. That is a historic reform position to hold, and so uh, I hold a standard reform as immediate and immediate. So I would agree with both Bonson and Sproul, and we can get into the exegetical data for that verse, the Greek words there, and what they mean. And uh, I, I do think a good case can be made for both there. Well, so you would argue that everyone has, at least to some degree, immediate knowledge of God. Of course, yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, and I think that's fair. And that's why, like I say, so now when I go on the street and I argue with the unbeliever, when I reason with the unbeliever, I take that into account, that they immediately know that God exists, and I try to expose that. And like I say, I I would love to, like, I've asked people who disagreed with presuppositionalism to some degree, and like the classical argument, say, could you show me how this looks on the street in a way with an unbeliever that does not, first of all, deny that they know that God exists, and is not Mm. probabilistic, because I have a problem with the probabilistic nature of argumentation, too, for the existence Mm. of God, because then, you know, there's an out. So, I mean, I would love to see that, because... I, I'm, I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just that nobody has ever come back to me and said, "Well, Sai, when I talk to the unbeliever and they say I really don't believe in God, this is how I, this is how I expose it." Now, if somebody were to come up to me and say, "I use these classical arguments to expose their suppression of truth," I say, "Amen. Show me how that looks." Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's really, that's that's a good segue. I think it's very that's very good. So, for instance, like with the classical arguments, um, I would just use them as as is, and I would say, "Yeah, well, that exposes." fact that you're lying to yourself, and I've had atheists tell me that after I've given them the classical arguments, um, you know, so it's, that does happen. Um, uh, so I don't have any issue with probabilistic arguments, so we have options here and how we're going to do this. So we can either do it the great Bonson way, which is, hey, you know, um, Bible says Christianity is true, I'm not going to argue for this anymore, and it's true, and, you know, the evidence of that is if anybody else comes, you know, with my bonds and blades and, and tangos with me, they're going to get you're going to get taken out, you know, which is, you know, I mean, I think very, very kind of a cool thing to say. But I, philosophically speaking, I have to say that, uh, you know, if you've taken out all the other competitors that have come forth, that doesn't that's not that's not sufficient evidence to prove that the claim is is, is true. Um, and so we're stuck with that argument, or we're stuck with in terms of showing it that it's probabilistic that Christianity 
is the only rational worldview with uh, probabilistic historical arguments and perfect being arguments from the ontological argument. That's what we're stuck with. And, you know, frankly, I, I, I am committed and confirmed in Christianity and with the great truths of the gospel. I believe that, uh, I know that infallibly, but I, I do distinguish like Craig does between knowing something is true and showing something is true. And apologetics chiefly has to do with showing something is true. And so the Bonson like claim, well, you know, uh, the proof that if the only worldview is come up to my blade and you'll be chopped up, well, that's only all the ones you've mentioned. There could be other ones if someone comes up to you and say, hey, you know, what about a fourth member of the Trinity? Or, hey, you know, I think continuationism is true, and there'll be a fourth member of the Trinity called, or the, the quadrinity called the cousin, and he'll mysteriously minister to me in heaven. You know, I mean, something really weird like that. I mean, you could say, well, at that point you're going to argue with that person and try to say, well, you know, continuationism is false, and and God didn't speak to you, and you're wrong. But that argument's not going to be properly a transcendental argument, and that argument properly in terms of showing Christianity is true, is not going to be an infallible argument in terms of showing. Now, you may know the entire time in your heart, you know, the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, you may know, hey, Christianity is true, and I would die for this faith. You may know that, but in terms of showing it intellectually on a philosophical level, uh, you know, I, I think we are going to be um, stuck with a probabilistic right. argument. But, but the thing is, how does, a probable argument, how does a probabilistic argument disprove Christianity? Um, so okay, so 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 the probabilistic argument show that it's um, the only rational position to hold, and you would know that with like say, you, you would not not know that, but you would show that would be a better way of saying it. You would show that with ninety five to ninety nine percent you know certainty and so on. So it would be would be much more rational to affirm that Christianity is the only reasonable worldview rather than not. Um, maybe you could just you know flesh that out, like how. How on the street somebody says, "Okay, I'm a proponent of Christianity." Yeah. You know, show me, tell me why that. How many? How how is that false? Yeah. So I, what I what I would do is I would use Occam's razor. I would say, given the way that I've constructed arguments for the ontological argument, say you only have three there. You have self-giving, cooperative love, which are um, better to have rather than to lack, and that that can be satisfied by three persons, and uh, that. Uh, Occam's razor would not would show that you don't need any more persons to add, and I would say we have historical documents, the scriptures, and they only teach three persons, and you're just making this up. I mean, obviously, there's no reason to believe this. Continuationism is, continuationism is false, um, so God couldn't have spoken to you and said that to you. Um, so continuationism is false, and uh, I have I, we, Occam's razor and um, the teaching of scripture and sola scriptura. That's basically how I would go about interacting with them. But you know, I think that's going to be a probabilistic showing to the argument, but I think that's at least an argument, and I think it's at least apologetical in character. Right. Um, okay, like I say, so maybe what I do then, you would not really even call it apologetic. Because somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I, I believe Christianity, or I don't believe the God of the Bible. I liken that to them blaspheming God, because God says, no, you do know that I exist. So when when somebody says, I don't know that God exists, they're actually calling him a liar. Because I, I would say blasphemy is not only taking God's name in vain, it's taking his word in vain. Now, this is the analogy that I've come up with. Let's say somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I think your wife is a prostitute. And now, I would say that's the same type of thing. You're blaspheming the name of your wife. 
And how do we respond to something like that? I would say you'd be dishonoring to your wife to say, well, you know, last night she was making dinner for me, so I'm pretty sure she wasn't walking the street. And the night before that, she was at her parents' place, so I'm pretty sure she wasn't walking the street that night. And the night before that, she was at choir practice. So, you know, I'm showing you very probably that my wife is not a prostitute. You wouldn't say that. You'd say, hey, pal, that's my wife you're talking about. You better be very careful. So somebody comes up to me and says, I don't believe in God. I say, look, you're blaspheming the God you know exists. This is a very dangerous thing for you to do. I'm going to expose the fact that you do know that God exists, but when you say that you don't, you're actually committing blasphemy, and this is not good for you. If you die unrepentant tonight, this conversation could be the worst thing for you because people are sent to hell according to the amount of truth they get and reject, and you're going to get a lot of truth here today. And that's more along the lines that I would do it. Now, is that apologetical? I would say, look, you know that God exists, and every one of your objections, when you say you don't know that God exists, you're basically saying the Bible is false. Okay, when you say the Bible is false, you're assuming a standard that you can't make sense of without God. And that's how I would say that they're, I would show their inconsistency of arguing against God by showing that their very argument against God is borrowing from him. And I think that's different than what you do with the classical argument. You're saying, okay, let's use your autonomous reasoning to try and conclude God. And the analogy that I've heard Bonson use before, too, is that's like getting onto the unbeliever's airplane. If the unbeliever believes that his reasoning, reasoning is autonomous, and you say, okay, let's get on your airplane and let's try and conclude using all these different argumentations, you know, that God exists, you're going to the unbeliever's def- destination because they have now concluded that God exists based on their autonomous reasoning, rather than at the outset saying, no, 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 your reasoning is not autonomous. You can't even make sense of this argument unless you start with God. And that's why, you know, um, further uh, along that line, where I don't even like the um, uh, transcendental arguments when it comes to stuff like um, morality, because I saw even on your blog that you mentioned a transcendental argument for uh, morality. And one thing that I say to people, I say, what does an argument about morality assume? It assumes stuff like truth, like logic, like rationality. So if I win the argument with the unbeliever on even a transcendental argument on morality, then I do it at a very high cost, and I'm giving them many things that I don't like to give to the unbeliever. Now, like I say, I might be in a very small minority when it comes to presuppositionalists. You know, if it starts at morality, I might go and I might defeat that argument, but I'll bring it very quickly back to um, epistemology to show them that unless they start with God, they can't even make sense of the conversation. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so a couple of things with this. Uh, so with the autonomy comment, um, in presuppositionalism, that's kind of a difficult word to define. And I don't, frankly, there's different, uh, I mean, that's one of the necessary conditions to be a presuppositionalist is affirm that unbelievers are not autonomous. And I, I agree with that. The question is, what does that mean? Well, obviously, they're not metaphysically independent. I mean, <laughs> by him, we live, breathe, and have our being, right? You can't be metaphysically. They're obviously epistemologically uh, dependent. Uh, you can't know anything without God. I think um, Lennon's evolutionary against naturalism and uh, Bonson's arguments about if atheism and evolution were true, you couldn't know atheism and evolution were true. I think all those arguments, uh, you know, I mean, show, yeah, you're epistemologically dependent on God, so metaphysically, epistemologically dependent. But um, the way that Frame parses it out is he says that um, they're dependent on revelation. And so um, what, I, what I am doing when I do classical apologetics is I am using the, the, the tools, uh, reasoning, instruments of reasoning, it's a minister, not a magistrate, a ministerial use of reasoning, to show the unbeliever that he apprehends uh, general revelation, that he's uh, being dishonest about God's existence. So uh, that's what I would be doing, and I also think it's beneficial for Christians, too, to know these arguments, because this is, I think, part of God's revealed truth. I think these arguments 
show us God's nature in and um, in nature. Pardon the pun there. Um, so, um, and I, I think you're right that you know a lot of what you do. Uh, I've seen a few clips of you, and uh, you know, largely familiar with your stuff. Um, and uh, some of the stuff you've done, I think, is is, is good. I've, I I liked. Uh, I think it was a previous discussion you had, not with Dillahunty, it was after that with a unbeliever, and he said, this atheist book is my Bible. I thought you did just tremendously well in that conversation. Um, but um, a lot of the stuff you do is described as apologetic, but a lot of it is just, yeah, preaching, which I do. I have no problem with preaching. Otherwise, uh, I wouldn't go into you know, the ministry. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I would say that, you know, just saying, hey, you know, it's just Bible's true, you're you're lying kind of thing. I think I think that is the the preaching part of it. But I would say what's showing Christianity true is this argue offering a transcendental argument from truth and logic. I think that is just uh, showing a certain aspect of Christianity, um, namely aspects of God's being, He's immaterial, necessary, and all those sorts of things. But I don't think that shows the whole enchilada, as they would say. So I, I ultimately think, yeah, that it's preaching with a little bit of apologetics, but it's not a complete apologetic, and that's why. I use the um, classical arguments, and I also use the resurrection. Um, I'm like a presuppositional classical guy. I use presuppositional apologetics first, classical, um, and then I go to the historical data for the resurrection, which if you read 1 Corinthians 15, most New Testament historians will actually say that Paul cites these witnesses, and you know, I think it's 300 or 400, that actually is a Greek and Hellenistic way of offering historical evidence. So I think it's difficult to do that in the first place in the context of an already established Christian framework, which is what I do to um, show the unbeliever just how obvious it is that God exists. And uh, I would say the Christian God is more obvious than me having a right hand. Right. Now, one uh, quick correction I want to make, too, is that um, you said that, you know, the unbeliever is lying. Um you know, I've heard people, after even having listening to some of my talks, they say the unbeliever is lying. And I just want to make that correction there, because Bonson never said that the unbeliever was lying. Uh, as far as I know, uh, Van Til never said that. He Actually, Bonson did a doctoral dissertation on, uh, on the phenomena of uh, self-deception. So he would say that it's a culpable suppression of the truth, rather than lying. And I, and I heard Butler talk about it, too, talking about first and second order beliefs, way above my pay grade. You know, that there are stronger beliefs that they suppress and, and lesser beliefs that they elevate. So I think, just, you know, uh, for some clarity on that, when I talk about the condition of the unbeliever, I don't say that they're lying. I'm just, you know, and like I say, could that be the case? Are they? Well, I just like to um, be more consistent with what Scripture says and say that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now, you talked about autonomy. Of course, we all, all Christians believe that the unbeliever is not autonomous, but I think that those arguments actually grant the person's unaided reason, when you argue with the person on their, that you're granting, of course, we deny that that's the case. And that's my problem with the argumentation. Is we deny that the reasoning is autonomous, and then we reason with them as though they can use it. We grant them their reasoning in order to reason to the conclusion that God exists. Now, for instance, the argument with the resurrection, if you've seen How to Answer the Fool, um, I talk about my friend Dustin, and he was at the um, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And this woman, she came up and she said, give me evidence for the resurrection. And Dustin is a presuppositionalist, but he gave her evidence for the resurrection. I say it's a perfect use of evidence because she wasn't arguing with him. She just wanted evidences for the resurrection. And Dustin has a photographic memory, so he was giving her all the evidences, you know, all the arguments. I'm sure you're familiar with them, you know, the weight of the stone, you know, the responsibility of the guards, the female witnesses. And he argued with her quite a while, and he actually convinced this woman that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I said, hallelujah, right? Do you know what this woman said? Okay, you convinced me that Jesus rose from the dead, but you didn't prove that he's the son of God. 
You didn't prove that he's God in the flesh. And I think that's, you know, even if you win those arguments, you're not proving the God of the Bible, and you're granting them argumentation while you're doing it. So I'm saying that not only do I not like the premise of the argument, that, you know, it looks on the surface of it that you're granting them reasoning, even if you win the argument, I don't see how it shows that the Christian God necessarily exists. Yeah, so a couple things here. Yeah, so self-deception, well, the deception of lying, and that's what, you know, Bonson's no, Bonson never called it that for one. He never called it lying. It, right. It, well, would you, would you say would you say all deception is lying though? Well, the thing is, like I say, he it, it's a different pay grade, it's way above my reason. But he did not call it lying. He called it a culpable suppression of the truth, and that might be um, that might be you know picking at it too finely. But I think you know if it was lying, if it was outright lying, that he would have. He called it that, and he would not have shied away from that term. So I'm just saying that I'd like to, because Scripture says suppression, suppressing the truth. Even Scripture doesn't say they're lying. Now, is it the same thing? Fine. But I'm, I just, because I have, I have a lot of grief from even Christians who say that, you know, these people are lying. And, and if you listen to Michael Butler's talk on that, he actually calls it a culpable suppression of the truth. And he says that the first and order, second beliefs, that they're not necessarily contradictory. So um, I would just say that being consistent with what I've heard, you know, in the teaching of the apologetic, none of the apologists that I've studied under have actually called it actually lying when they're talking about the existence of God. Yeah, I may have not used that word. Yeah, I, I, I grant that, certainly. Uh, but I would just take deception just to be lying, and it's self-lying, obviously, it's self-deception. And, uh, you know, when I'm holding a ball, I'm suppressing the ball underneath a pool, right? I have right. no... The ball was there in order to be suppressing it. So to me, it, it, it does seem that way. Though I have to admit, John Frame doesn't view it that way. He just thinks that um, contradictory beliefs. Um, but uh, you know, to that though, um, reasoning with unbelievers and specifically they don't prove the Christian God. Well, I guess I just uh, maybe there's just a disconnect here or a miscommunication. I'm not sure which. But um, we use the argument from the laws of logic or show that you need truth in order to you know you need presuppose God in order to have truth, um, and those sort of things. It strikes me that that is um, reasoning with unbelievers, and obviously, uh, you know, that doesn't specifically prove the Christian God. So, I, what I when I when I hear these sort of things, I just can't. I just don't. I'm not really sure how these objections don't also apply to your own position. Well, let me help you with. Let me help you with that. Yeah, yeah. I would say the God of Christianity is a necessary precondition for the laws of logic as he's revealed to us in Scripture. That would be my first premise. I would say the God of Christianity is a necessary precondition for logic, as he's revealed to us. Logic exists, therefore God exists. So I'm presupposing the God of Christianity. I'm not saying, you know, if there wasn't God, you know, we couldn't have logic. It's very similar, but I think it's a little bit different. That we're, You know, I'm not denying the certainty that God exists in my first premise. Right, right. So, 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 you're, so you're not able to show, though, you may believe it, and the Bible says, and I agree with all that, you know, hearty amen to that. Um, you're not able to show that it's specifically the God of Christianity that is sure necessary. Sure, I can. Psalm oh, 96, okay. 5. Because as I added, like I say, so I don't use a bare-bones tag. I say the God of right. Christianity is a necessary precondition for logic as he is revealed to us in Scripture. God exists. Right, and, uh, I mean, logic yeah. exists, therefore God exists. Sure, sure, and I guess I guess someone could have an alternative citation from another text and say, yeah, I wrote, wrote this book last night, Right. <laughs> God spoke to me, and it's a necessary precondition of logic, you know, sort of thing, 
And then he says, well, you know, it says right here. And so that proves it. And, you know, they could say that back. And so that's why I'm, I mean, at this point, we're not really engaged in apologetics, but it's kind of saying so it doesn't make it so kind of thing and shouting. And I'm well, more that's interested what in showing that it's true. Yeah, well, well, the thing is you don't. That's the problem. Because when, when somebody makes that objection, then it's a biblical argument. Then we go to our ultimate authorities. And I would say Psalm 96.5, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And then I would compare our text. Sure, then we become more evidential, but I do not deny the truth of what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the argument that, that people levy against presuppositionalism applies to their argumentation, but even more so because I would say it does not start with God. Right. Well, I, I guess when you start getting evidential and getting specific there and start getting into historical arguments and that sort of thing, um, you, you, at that point, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, having that the Christian God is, a, you know, you're not actually showing that, like, in that sort of philosophical sense. Well, my evidence getting, is the Bible. Right. And so the person could say, well, my evidence is this book I wrote last night and God spoke to me. And so right. you're kind and of you can say that for any classical right argument. You can say that for any classical argument, the difference being that I'm starting with the truth of Scripture and the truth of God's existence. I'm not merely concluding it. I'm not starting with the autonomous reasoning of the unbeliever. Even though I deny it, I'm going to say, okay, you say that, you're, uh, that you don't believe in God, and let's use your reasoning to try and go through this arg- get through this argument to try and conclude the Christian God. The Christian God, I'm saying, well, I'm giving them something that Scripture says they cannot have. Now, this is, maybe, this analogy, this, maybe this analogy will be helpful. I say, let's yeah. say that two, two nations are going to have a war, and one nation has all of the ammunition. When does that war start? That war starts when you give the other am- nation some ammunition. And I say, I'm not going to do that. Jesus Christ owns logic. He owns science. He owns morality. I will not give that to the unbeliever to argue against the Lord that I adore. And I'm saying that's what these arguments are doing. They're giving the unbeliever ammunition that belongs to Jesus Christ. Hey, Nate. Right. And I, gonna, go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, go ahead. Hey, yeah, I was just going to say yeah. you're uh, just been a little bit muffled in when you're when you're talking. So I don't know if you if you're talking directly into the the, the phone there, but uh, just wanted to point that out there for our recording purposes. So um, go ahead and, and let you can continue the conversation. Maybe at some point we can switch, and uh, Nate, you can ask some questions of uh, of Cy. But go ahead and re- respond, and you guys are doing a good job. You're really enjoying it. Great. Uh, can you hear me okay right now? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Ty, can you hear him okay? Yeah, I can hear him fine. Okay, uh, okay great, great, great. So, uh, yeah, a couple things about giving them ammunition. Well, I mean, if we take ammunition to be, you know, reasoning with them, then I guess the only alternative is not to reason with them, in which case it does become an Mexican standoff and there's no war at all other than people, uh, it seems to me, sort of shouting each other. Um, and I guess why I don't think this necessarily compromises autonomy and this is going to go into the, the, the biblical arguments here, I guess, that this would be a natural transition for this, um, is because I think the Bible uh, teaches us um, to reason and to, uh, and, and to you know, it's pretty, I'll just give you a few examples of this. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.15 says, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. So we're to judge, we're, we're, we're to judge what, what Paul says in the, in the proceeding text there. And then 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, and this is when prophecy was still around, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says, but test everything. So Scripture right. teaches you to test everything, and Believers. You know, Scripture is a thing. So. Believers. 
Right, right. Okay, well, that, that's a very good point, and I, and I, I thought you might say that, actually. Um, but uh, for unbelievers, First Kings, um, and this is actually the judge, and kind of like we're putting you know, God on trial, you know, I've heard you object to the God's Not Dead movie and that sort of thing. But First Kings, I think 18, 21 to 24, uh, you, know, you have a life there, and you have these prophets. He says, hey, we're going to see what God is, you know, what God is a real God, you know. And he says, well, the one that responds with fire. And, right. um, and and to me, that sounds like, you know, we're going to see what God is, is true. So he's showing that, that he's showing that Christianity is true there yeah. um, in that instance, and, and he's letting them judge that. Um, I'm really glad you brought, brought up that example. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up that example, because what happened at the end of that, when he said, okay, your God is God, the prophets of Baal said, your God is God, then Elijah said to him, okay, well, here's our circumcision tent. Now that you believe that the, the God, my God, is God, now that you believe, line up single file, we're going to circumcise you, welcome aboard. Is that what he did? Uh, well, actually, the prophets of Baal were, were killed. Yeah, right, he slaughtered them. So I'm saying if William yeah. Craig wins a debate, that's great, he just got to kill his opponent. <laughs> well, I'm not a, I'm not a theonomist, so I don't think we should be doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean on grounds, but I just meant it on historical right. grounds. That I would right. say that, that that evidence that was given in that passage was a judgment upon them. And the way that I liken it is like some cop. He's you know he's six foot eight. He's in full uniform. He comes up to some snot nosed kid, and some snot nosed kid says, "You know, I don't believe you're a cop." He says, "Oh, you want evidence I'm a cop? Here you go." You know, and that's not giving them evidence as though they did not know that God exists. Because if that's the case, then you would have to say that the prophets of Baal did not know epistemically, did not know for certain that God exists. And I would say their treatment after they were given the evidence exposes that the fact that that evidence was merely judgment. Right. Oh, oh absolutely. It was judgment. I would I would say they knew that Christian God was true, but that was that was showing it, and that was letting them to be to be, be the judge there to see what God is. Going to be true. That's that's their to function to mask or take off the mask of their deceitful heart. Um, right. And so, yeah. Sorry. W- just one quick uh, note on that. The evidence was also calling fire down from heaven. And now I get people, you know, uh, evidentialist, classical apologists who say, well, there was evidence given in scripture. I say it was miracles. I say, if you can do miracles, go for it. I have no right, problem with right. that. I have no problem with that. If you can call fire right. down, man, I'm not going to say, hey, I'm a presuppositionist. Don't do that. I say, man, go for it, man. I'd love to see that. Right, right. I'm just usually I'm just using the examples here in scripture right. to say that, that that there are appropriate cases when you do that, and uh, and and so you know, for me looking at the rest of scripture, are we to do that regularly? Um, you know, to, to 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 judge would see who's the God, you know, the true God, the one who answers the fire, and uh, you know, the prophets of Baal obviously were slaughtered in that case, as you you know pointed out, but there were you know Ahab and the Isra- other other Israelites up there seeing the whole thing, you know, watching them cut up themselves and that crazy and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it was a testimony to say, hey, this is a true God, um, and so it disproved the prophets of Baal and uh, their claims. But are we to do this regularly? I, I think I think in Romans one twenty, and this goes to the immediate, immediate thing we were discussing earlier, and so I think, um, I, I, I don't think that knowledge requires certainty. I know, I, I, can, I can't tell sometimes if you think that or not when I'm listening to you talk, so why don't I just ask you, <laughs> because I'm talking to you right now, do, do you think that knowledge requires uh a hundred percent Cartesian infallible certainty. Well, I I would say that you've hit on a point where I get a lot of grief, even from my uh, Christian brethren, because they believe that I'm saying that. And what I say when I'm on the street, and maybe I've misspoken in the past, but I say knowledge to any degree requires God. 
So yeah. now I, I, I'm, I'm a simple man. I'm, I'm a factory worker. A simple definition that I adhere to for knowledge is justified true belief. I would say in order to know something, it must be true. And if somebody wants to show me how they can know something that is not true, that is not certainly true, I'm open to that. It's just that I've never had anybody explain that at a level that I can understand how somebody can have knowledge of something that is not true. And and I don't see how true can be in degrees. Something is true or it's not true. So, you know, as as I understand knowledge, the thing known must be true. Not probably true, not mostly true. It must be true. And that's my understanding of knowledge. I'm open to somebody uh, showing me some sort of knowledge that is not certain. I'm open to that. But I don't even say that on the street, and I, I get criticized for that. But on the street, I say, you know, sometimes I might ask them, are they certain? But the point is that I'm saying that you can have knowledge to any degree unless you start with the God of the Bible. Right, right. So, um, yeah, you, you know, with that recent discussion with uh, the, the atheist one that says, oh, this is my Bible, you were careful to say to any degree, um, and I like that. Um, with Dillahunty, it was a bit harder for me to tell uh, what you were espousing there. Um, but, well, I, uh, I asked Matt Dillahunty if a thing known must be true, and he agreed that it had to be. So, you know, I would say that, you know, even he would espouse that if, if something's true, it, you know, truth by definition is absolute, as, as far as I can see. And like I say, I'm not a philosopher, but I'm not even beholden to that. If somebody wants to show me, you know, something knowledge that's less than certain, you know, I, I, I'm willing, I'm open to that. I don't believe that's the case. However, you know, like I say, my point again is that the unbeliever can have cannot have knowledge to any degree unless they start with God. Right, right. So a couple things kind of flying around here. So in my head, so there's a complex, there's a there's conflation of epistemology and metaphysics. Metaphysics, you know, dealing with ontology and reality, and obviously something's true or it's false. I mean, you, you can, there's, and truth is not a degreed property. Something can have more or less, or less more true or less true. You can't have that. Um, so every fallibilist theory of knowledge would say that in order for something to be knowledge, it has to be true. Um, the justifier or the warrant for that belief can be degreed. It has to be more likely than not or more reasonable than not. If you're an internalist, if you're Alan Plenaga, just has to have more warrants or degree of belief that's, uh, you know, over 51%. Um, and so um, that makes it more likely. But, of course, um, you're saying that it's more likely that this, is, that this is going to be true. It's not saying there's more truth there. It's just saying that I have a belief and there's reasons for it or warrant for it. And, and if it is true, which you have reasons for thinking, then it, then it constitutes knowledge. And so your knowledge then, um, you, you, so, so for instance, um, I'll give you an example. Um, infant baptism. Okay, let's just talk about that one. I, I would say I know that infant baptism is true. I know I'm a Presbyterian. I would say I know that um, to, to be true. Now, um, I know that fallibly. Uh, I have good reasons in the Bible. I believe it. And uh, I, 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 that suggests to me that it's true. So now, but when I know that I know that I'm a Presbyterian, that knowledge of whether or not that connected up with truth or not, that knowledge of, okay, you, you know that, that, say, infant baptism is true. Do I know that I know that infant baptism is true? Well, the first part of the knowing is knowing that I know that infant baptism is true. That is also fallible. And the reason why it's fallible is because it, it could or could not have connected up with truth. And if it didn't connect up with truth, well, then it's not really knowledge. But I have good reasons for thinking it's knowledge, and so my knowledge of my knowledge like all things, or um, all things, but many things are fallible. So I guess that's where the hang-up is, and, and Feldman discusses this in his book on epistemology that 
um, where, where people get tripped up here is that basically fallibles are saying that your that your knowledge of your knowledge can also be fallible. So, you know, do I know for do I do I know for certain that my knowledge connected up with truth and that what I am believing and I have grounds for is actually true? Well, I know that also fallibly. And also, I don't know if you know this, but in epistemology, in order to know something, you don't know that you have to know it or you don't have to know to know it. You just have to know it, you know. And that, and if you, someone denies that, what happens is you end up being a skeptic and you end up saying things that um, seem kind of counterintuitive. And so for me, you know, it seems like, you know, a basic, you know, guy in the street, commonsensical. I mean, it's obvious to me, you know, that I'm not a brain of that. It's obvious to me that my wife loves me. My wife could be lying to me, but she's probably not, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, so those things, I, I would know those things. I know I'm a Presbyterian. I, I, I think I have the right eschatology. I think I have knowledge of that. Could be wrong, but um, I, I, I have I have good reason to think that that I have a belief and it's and it's warranted and that it's true. And my knowledge of my knowledge does not have to be infallible. It only has to be fallible. I know that's a mouthful, but that's basically how fallible is deal with that objection. That I think they're trying to get at there. Right, and like I mean, you lost me almost immediately. <laughs> so oh, okay. But when when I talk about this on the street, you know, I ask the person, could you tell me something you know to be true which might be false? So maybe you could help me out if I were to ask you that on the street, if you want to play the unbeliever, could you tell me something that you know to be true which might be false? Now, would you would would you say, would you deconstruct my question or how would you even answer something like that? Something that you know to be true which might be false. So something I do, I, so I know it, I know it to be true fallibly. And so, um, and so, I have knowledge that I know it to be true. But that knowledge of me knowing it to be true, um, that first order knowledge right there, the one, the first one, the knowledge that I know it to be true, that also is fallible. And so, um, that means I know it to be true with good reason. And so, how does that so differentiate from up, a? How, how does that differentiate yeah. from a strong belief? Um, well, so I'll just well, depending on how you're using strong belief, if you just mean more reasonable than not, that wouldn't necessarily be a strong belief. A strong belief would be when does like it become 90, knowledge? After fifty-one percent, so it's more <laughs> more reasonable, more likely than not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would not say that if somebody knows something to fifty-one percent validity. Um, I mean, I would not call that knowledge. Now, that might put me in. I don't know what ep- epistemic camp that puts me in. But I'm, I know a lot of people. I run to a lot of people on the street, you know, of different cults who would I, I would say that even in their deception would say that they know this over fifty percent. And I would not. I wouldn't say that they know it. I would say that they're deceived. Well, yeah. Well, I would obviously say they're deceived too because with their their belief, we can show it's false. Um, but you know, like when I'm, I'm driving to the bank, you know, and I say, you know, honey, talking to my wife, you know, I need to deposit this check, you know. Um, and I think the bank's open. I, I mean, I know the bank is open, but I don't know for sure. There's nothing contradictory about that statement. That statement perfectly, we use it all the time. Well, I know it, but I don't know it for sure. I know some baptism is true, but I don't know it for sure. You know, right. um, I, 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 I know that heliocentrism is true, that the sun is the center of the universe. I don't know it for sure. Scientists and mathematicians could be lying to me. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. So, I mean, it would just seem strange and uncommon sense to we'll say, well, you know, I don't really know that heliocentric is true, and I don't really know if the bank is open. There could be, it could be a holiday that I'm unaware of. They could be cleaning the pipes. I don't know. Um, but, but the thing is, most likely, it is, oh, bank is open, and most likely, 
heliocentrism is true, and, and most likely, um, I, I think I have really good reasons for this one, that my wife loves me. I have really good reasons. But, you know, I mean, things could be a farce, and people could lie to me, and that happens all the time. So um, I think that, that but, I think we say that. I think we say that we use knowledge in a colloquial term, in a, in a colloquial, yeah. colloquial way. I think we use it that way, but I don't really think that's what it means. You know, I think we yeah, use so, it that way. But if if we said that about everything, then knowledge would lose meaning. I, I think knowledge would be so, meaningless then. But wouldn't that mean that you wouldn't know that you're a Presbyterian? I would say I have a strong belief that I'm a Presbyterian. And I think that we can know things for certain. I think that God has granted us um, things that we can know epistemically, certainly that are not in Scripture. Like, I'm not a scripturalist. I believe that we can know things for certain that are not written in Scripture using our God-given sense and reasoning. So I have no problem with that. Yeah, and, and so what, what ends up happening, and this is so, and this is why most people hold the fallibilism, because people can construct skeptical scenarios that are certainly possible, um, you know, that would that would strip you of that knowledge, and so this is why. Well, the problem is, then you can't be certain that God exists either. Well, see, see, this is this is where I would say, with a priori beliefs, uh, especially transcendental arguments, I would say you can't have certainty. And I would say, when reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit uh, produces a sort of infallible knowledge in you. And, right, so um, we can have certainty. Oh, so God can yeah, make I mean, us certain of things, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I would say I'm certain of my existence. I'm certain that God exists. I'm certain that Christ. Um, I'm, I would say I'm not certain in a weird philosophical sense. And again, you know, this is why. I mean, most most infallibleists are skeptics, and a lot of them deny knowledge. Uh, we have knowledge of most ordinary beliefs, and I want to construct a theory of knowledge that does fit our common language and does work for the guy in the street. So when we use a skeptical language, don't, like only really strange academic philosophers use, there's a small minority of them, not the majority. Most most philosophers or epistemologists do hold the fallibilism. Then um, what ends up happening is that you hold beliefs that, you know, strip you of just common sense beliefs. Like, it's, it's more obvious to me, Cy, that you know that you're a Presbyterian than this sort of skeptical arguments that, that are being espoused for infallibilism. It's just more obvious to me. It's more obvious to me that I know that my wife loves me more than not. I mean, these, these things are just obvious to me and are commonsensical. And so I want to construct an epistemology that fits my common sense and God-given rights as an image bearer, and that's kind of where I kind of approach this in terms of my vantage point. Um, so. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I just find that that reduces um, Christianity to a wishy-washiness. Because, for instance, we're also commanded to obey God's command. We're commanded not to steal. We're commanded not to commit adultery. And I'm saying that we can know these things not in a most, not in a 51%, that we can know these things for certain. Otherwise, God has commanded us to do things that we could not do. I mean, he's commanded us not to commit adultery. That means that you can know for certain who is and who is not your wife. He's commanded us not to steal that. Therefore, I believe it follows that we can know for certain which is and which is not our vehicle. Because if we cannot know these things for certain, then we can't obey the commands that God, God has given us. Yeah, I, I guess the fallibleist would just simply, like I would say to that, I said, well, yeah, we, we can follow those things. I follow them, and I don't believe I have infallible knowledge. I mean, you know, the Bible says the standard of conviction is uh, true to three witnesses. I mean, those witnesses could be lying. Um, that's possible. Maybe people are liars. Uh, to God be true that everyone's a liar. So those two or three witnesses, I mean, the, the Bible does not, I don't think, um, commit itself to this sort of infallibilism, and I don't think it's, I think it's a, um, I think it's a, a sort of a philosophical view that was espoused by, by Descartes and modern thinkers, and I don't think it's, I think, I think reading that into the biblical text is anachronistic and uh, probably not helpful. 
for, for the Christian walk. I mean, obviously, I believe you're a dear brother, and I believe Jesus died for your sins, so I'm not saying that you're, you know, on a Christian or something like that, but I'm just saying I don't think it's helpful to think about these things in this way because I think we're reading back things into the Bible that were not originally intended um, to be der- derived from the Bible, is my thinking on this. Hey, yeah, Nate, but I, I think... Uh, Oh, sorry. Go, go, go ahead. So, no, go ahead. So I'll let you ask. Uh, no, I would say that. The, the, yep. Yeah, that's fine. We can we can wrap it up. But I would say verse after verse in Scripture shows that we can have certainty. Acts two thirty six. Let the house of Israel though, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. Luke 1, 3, and 4, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed also good to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things that you have been taught. And there's verse after verse after verse that talks about full assurance, that talks about certainty. And I'm saying that if we're talking about a 51% belief that is necessary for knowledge, I just think that's inconsistent with what God is saying in his word. I think that we can have a certain knowledge of that God exists, and I think you agree with that as well. And I just think that sure. the other type of arguments... Um, deviate from, from that position. Well, okay, this goes back to the anachronistic thing here, reading things back into the text. So certainty there, so I would say I have certainty that my wife loves me. I have um, certainty that heliocentrism is true. I have certainty of these things. It's, it's very obvious, common sense. I'm, I'm certain that I have a right hand. But the, the sort of certainty you're talking about is this very precise, philosophical, pure, kind of 99.99%, you know, Weird scenarios could, could show you can have knowledge. I mean, I mean that's not only the certainty the Bible's talking about. I don't think I have I, I have that sort of certainty about my right hand, but I would say I have practical certainty about my right hand. I believe I have a right hand. I could be wrong about that. I could be you know in a dream and a quadriplegic in real life or a brain in the back. But I, I do believe that uh, I have certainty I have a right hand. I also would say that the classical arguments prove with a certainty, a practical certainty, with certainty that the person on the street you're talking to cares about. They don't care about this weird, you know, obscure, philosophical, infallibleistic certainty that Descartes tells you. They care about, hey, I do I know with certainty that right hand? Do I know with certainty that Christianity is true? Can you show it? So I would say in that sort of the way that we use certainty in the common colloquialist sense, the way the Bible is using it right there, I do I do think you can show with certainty that Christianity is true. So, and I mean, that, that would be kind of where I'm at. I, you can show it so clearly to doubt it, you're just you're just denying common sense, but you're denying you have a right hand. That's that's why I, I place right. But I, just, I just don't think that leaves the unbeliever without excuse, as it says in Romans one. I think that you're talking about what what more would be a psychological certainty rather than an epistemic certainty. And I don't think those passages are talking about a feeling of certainty or a you know. I think that they're talking about an epistemic certainty that we could have, like it says in Romans one, so that we're without excuse, not mostly without excuse, but totally, completely without excuse. Yeah, and, and so thinking about that way, I would say they're not talking about practical certainty um, in, in, in the sense that they're not talking, it, it involves it, it involves epistemology. I think it's saying that it, it's so obvious. Like, for instance, um, it's obvious that my wife loves me. It's very obvious. But it isn't um, It isn't like the sort of Cartesian sort of thing. So I, I, what I take certainty is just obvious. And, and so that ends up looking practically um, almost identical in terms of my actions to 100% certainty. 99 to 100% you go a percentage point. There's <laughs> not really much practical difference. So that's why it's impractical certainty. So it does have epistemic in- implications. I mean, it's obvious that God exists. It's obvious to me the classical arguments work. It's obvious to me that I could show that Christianity is true. It's obvious to me that I have a right hand. Um, I could be wrong about that. 
but I, it's, it's obvious to me. It's just so, it, it's very clear. And so that's why I think those passes are talking about. I don't think that uh, unbelievers do have an excuse because, one, they have a basic belief that infallibly that the Christian God is true and they, they, they are self-deceived. I'll use that terminology for you. They're self-deceived. Um, and so uh, they don't have an excuse either way. So but we're talking about showing Christianity true. And when you're doing that, I do think you can show it to be obviously true. Yeah, okay. okay, I think Nate, Devin wants uh, to break in. Sorry. Yeah, if that's, if that's okay, gentlemen. Um, I was going to see if, if Nate, did you have some questions for, for Cy? I know he's been asking you some, some questions for a bit. Did you have any questions or concerns with his apologetic methodology? Let you guys uh, have a discussion. We've got about 40 minutes left. So um, really appreciate the, the tone of the discussion, and, and both of you guys are brilliant, brilliant guys. So uh Turn it over to you, Nate. Yeah, so, you know, at this point, you know, I I guess I can go over, like, uh, another issue that was kind of going around in my head is that I just, I I still have difficulty seeing how, you know, the reasoning with unbelievers with classical arguments and the reasoning with transcendental arguments, um, and, you know, I've heard, you're friends with Jeff Durbin, um, and the way I I hear him reasoning is, I mean, mean, it's in the way he reasons with transcendental arguments, sounds very similar to how I would, you know, reason with unbelievers with classical argument. Do you think that Jeff Durbin is, is wrong in, in the way that he reasons with unbelievers? I mean, the way I've heard him, he, he does more kind of logic and morality kind of stuff. And the way I well, you'd, have, you'd have to give a specific example. I was just down there, and we just did a debate together in California. And, yeah, um, really. no, I, I agree with um, with the way he does apologetics. I think some of the answers he's, he'd given, I'd probably give it a little bit differently than he did. But, um, yeah, if you give me a specific example, I could tell you whether I agree with it or not. But th- there's not some that jumps out at me that I think, well, you know, you can't say that. Uh, right. So he's with you on not giving actual specific transcendental arguments. Is that right? I don't know. I, I, I've i not heard him. Like, the thing is, here's the thing. Uh, Jeff, he's on the street. I'm on the I mean, if you look at the Bonson Conference, the, the type of people that were speaking there were just incredible. But the people that they had to the, do the debate is two guys, two dudes, really, who were out on the street. And so what I want to do is I want an apologetic methodology that I think is consistent with Scripture that helps me on the street. And, you know, we could talk about, you know, warrant. We could talk about all these things. But when it comes down to it, I've never seen that done on the street. So when I see Jeff on the street, I say, hey, praise God. Well, he say stuff that I might not agree with? You know, I don't think there's anything that I could really point to. But... Um, you know, we're just trying to be faithful to the word when we talk with unbelievers, and I think he's being consistent with that when when he does presuppositional apologetics. Right, right. I, I, I guess I mean, so I, 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 you're the, I mean, you're the only one I've heard, you know, blanketly, blanketly say like that. That, yeah, I don't really, I'm not interested in giving transcendental, you know, arguments. Um, you know, like a step by step. Oh, my step friend Dustin Seegers, you know, he says the same things. And the thing is, you know, we're just a bunch of guys, you know, like I say, I'm a former factory worker, and we talk about these things, and we can see the problem with the bare-faced transcendental argument because you cannot prove the impossibility of the contrary. I don't, you know, I know that Michael Butler says that you can. I listen to his lecture series, and I just don't see it there. Like, I believe, and you could correct me on that, but I believe he says that you can disprove Christianity philosophically, and I just don't see that's possible. So in that regard, I might be more Clarkian when it comes to that specific point that I believe is true. I believe this is true because the Bible says so. And that's what I'm going to take on the street, and that's what I'm going to use in my argumentation. I'm going to say, okay, this is what the Bible says about you. And if you disagree with that, I'm going to show why that is absurd. Now, you know, as far as I can see, that's giving a reasoned defense of my faith. I think that's apologetics. And now what some people say, well, you're saying this wrong, you're saying this wrong. I say, fine, 
tell me what I said wrong and tell me in that situation what you would have said. That to me is helpful. And I wish that these people who are critical of presuppositional apologetics or even the methodology that some of us use would just give me a call and say, Sai, when you said this, you know, you might have wanted to say this. And this is the question that I ask people. And people think it's a shot, and it's not a shot. I say, look, can you show me you doing it on the street or somebody else doing it on the street that you would say this is the proper apologetic? And not once has anybody ever come back to me and said, Sai, have a look at this video. I think when this guy engaged an unbeliever, this is how the conversation should go. That is helpful to me. And then I could look at that and I could compare that with Scripture and see if that's the case or not. But just, you know, a philosophical argument about, you know, <laughs> what, what we're talking about now, that, for me, is not helpful when we're on the street about degrees of knowledge and stuff like that. I want to know how that looks when we're on the street. Well, personally, that never comes up because I don't use, um, you know, could you could you be wrong about everything sort of argument? I don't, I don't even do that. I don't even take it to that level. Um, I just, I, I give them arguments for God's existence, the transcendental, you know, uh, koan, cosmological, modal, ontological arguments, and I try to explain it in simple terms. And I am on the street. I do do that. I mean, I evangelize people on a regular basis. I evangelize to my friends who are unbelievers. You know, that's something I do. Um, I don't carry a video with me because, frankly... No, no, I understand I, that. that. That's not what I'm yeah, saying. Like I say, I'm not even making a shot. I mean, it's just an observation. I'm not, I wasn't talking about you specifically. Yeah. But the thing is, I think those type of arguments don't prove the God of Christianity. Yeah, and I, I, guess, I guess if you're looking for that, I mean, I don't think that the ones you're using do that either. Well, they so start with of, the God of Christianity. I would say every argument starts with the God of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, so but it's but sort of, the thing is, see, now we're talking past each other, though. Because when yeah. I say my yeah. argument starts with the God of Christianity, I voice it. When you say your argument starts with the God of Christianity, you're saying, well, God is necessary to even have this conversation. But that's not being voiced in the argument. So I agree that both of them start with the God of Christianity, but one does it overtly, and the other one, I think, actually denies it. Uh, that's a very good, well-articulated point there, yeah. And I don't think that you need to overtly um, do that, and I don't think I don't think Bonson does either, that you overtly have to have to say, that okay, you know this is this, right. this is you know yeah. So, but I the, mean, the problem yeah. is, I think it's not only that they're not overt; is that they deny it. They assume it, but in the argumentation, they deny it because they grant the unbeliever things that the Bible says they can't have without God. Right, and so I, I, I guess thinking about this, then um, it, what I what I try to do in my discussion with unbelievers and taking it to the streets and talking to them about Christ is. Um, I, I certainly assume it in my argument that the Christian God is true. I mean, I, there is, you know, no argument I don't give that doesn't assume that. But um, I don't overtly mention that because I don't find it unhelpful. It just, it just amounts to just preaching. And if you're interested in preaching, well, you know, that's 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 good. But I don't really even see it as apologetics at that point. And I guess if, with the discussion about apologetics, it just amounts to I'm interested in showing this is, is true and you're interested right. in preaching, which is great. I mean, the gospel well, of preaching that, is how people are saved, though. you know. Yep. But that's not really what I'm saying, though, because time and time again, when somebody's come up to me and said, you know, I don't believe in God, well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you do. And you'd be surprised at how many times you get that nod, that look, you know. And this, this uh, friend of mine I've been training in Pennsylvania, it's happened to her twice on the street. Somebody comes up to her and says, I'm an atheist. She says, no, you're not. And the guy drops his head. He says, yeah. You know, now, that's not preaching. That's just exposing, you know, what Scripture says. And now, if they deny that, of course, of course where do you go from there? You know, and I think it's as simple as saying, well, the Bible says you do know. The Bible says you know. Right. Well, pre preaching is, is proclaiming, so it uses that sort of uh, language in the Bible. And so when, when, you, when you're when you proclaiming something, you're just asserting it to be true. You're telling them that 
proclamation, you are dead in your sins, you are suppressing the truth, whereas reasoning would be taking them through a step-by-step process. And um, when, when they're overt and they, they, they overtly, you know, John Frame distinguishes between um, this sort of vicious circularity and this sort of uh, larger circle, which is, I think, a little epistemologically naive, but I think helpful on some level for our discussion purposes, is the overtly thing is just a openly circular argument, whereas this is more... Um, this is more ultimate standard. You know, the standard meter is a you know a meter high. You know, all with all ultimate standards, that's the case. But there does, it doesn't necessarily result in this sort of vicious circle circularity. And so when that sort of circularity occurs, a sort of vicious circularity, it just I, it seems to me not really to amount to apologetics, but just just preaching, which is great. You should preach the gospel. I preach the gospel. It's what I do for a living. <laughs> so I have no problem with you there. But we're talking about apologetics, which is showing uh, Christianity is true. I, I just think that looks a bit different than just preaching. Um, just back to Frame. Now, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I would say that Frame would say that presuppositional apologetics is a tool in the toolbox that you can use on, you know, when it's called for. Whereas Bonson would say that no presuppositional apologetics is the very floor on which the toolbox sits. And I think that's the difference. Now, would, would yeah, you call I guess I'm more with Bonson there. I'm, I'm more with Bonson there. Um, uh, you know, I would I would I would agree with Frame that subsidiary arguments need to be used. But I, w- I would, I told Beth in this, you know, much to his sadness and agony. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, I, I like, I, I, I love the classical apologetics, but I said, you know, frankly, you know, what convicted me as an unbeliever is knowing that I'm sitting on my Heavenly Father's lap, slapping him in the face with these arguments, and the transcendental arguments show that, and they're beautiful. That's why I love them so much. That's why they resonated with um, me in, in my conversion. So, you know, that's why I start off with them. I, I, I much prefer them, and that's the way I go. But that's not to say that I'm going to deny other parts of general revelation, which I think are clear and obvious, which is the cosmological, paleological, yeah. all those sort of things. So I just want to bring the whole... I want, I want to be honoring to all of God's revelation, and I think those... Um, I think that those arguments are part of God's general revelation and are good for uh, building up Christian faith. Um, I, I think I heard you say that you don't think they build up Christian faith, but I think they do because I think revelation does uh, bring uh, gladness and comfort to any part of revelation, whether it's general or special, brings great comfort to a believer's heart. And so, frankly, right. I, I do believe firmly that the ontological, classical, I disagree with William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig says they're human arguments, they're just human devices. And they, and they produce human conclusions, which I want to say to Craig, you know, dear brother, why do you even use them, you know? Um, right. So I have a question I, I for you along we... that line before we get too far. Because um, I used to say that if you look at how to answer the fool, I say that evidences are helpful in strengthening the faith of believers. And uh-huh. I don't say that anymore because my friend actually confronted me on that. And he asked yeah. me the question, what is a weak faith? What is a faith that requires evidence to strengthen it? What is that? Is well, that somebody who who thinks that God exists, who probably believes that God exists, and these evidence? Are, I just don't, and that's one thing that I'm interested in. What's the, what's the definition of a weak sure. faith? Well, I believe, but help my unbelief, which is in Mark's gospel. Um, so all, all of Revelation, I think, strengthens our belief. Uh, Revelation, I, I mean, we all have, I mean, you said you've never doubted, but of course I've doubted because I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus Christ daily and constantly. Yeah, I no, I've never doubted the grace. I've never doubted the existence of God. There's many things I've doubted, but I've never doubted the existence of God. Because I, you know, what oh. I would say is that God is necessary to formulate doubts. Oh, I, I, I agree with that. But people are sinful and and, and evil. Uh, I'm a Calvinist, so I would say <laughs> that. So I, 
I would say that, that in those times, uh, general revelation, especially revelation, help our evil, darkened, sick hearts. And so I believe these classical arguments help that. Um, you know, Devin is very, is very cool. I, I love Devin for this. He's just a, a real pal to me. He says he was, he was, uh, he was go, going, going out to the hospital. He was very, very, very ill at the time, and it was a possibility that his life would, would end. Um, and Devin, Devin was sinful. We're all sinful. Um, me, me too. If I were in Devin's position, I probably would be doubting more because I, I, I need Jesus so much. But uh, he was he was having a period of doubt. If you don't mind me telling the story, do you, Devin? Oh no, no, not at all, not at all. Okay, okay, good, good, good. So, so De- Devin was was you know laying down. He was running through all the arguments for God's existence to comfort him to know, hey, I'm I'm going to be with Jesus Christ if I do die, you know, and God's going to take care of my wife. Um, so, I mean, I, I think general revelation can certainly provide that for believers. And I think that uh, it exposes the folly of unbelief. How silly. Even, you know, every argument presupposes God, and, you know, you can either give a presuppositional argument to show that, or you can give a classical argument to show that they're even uttering God, they're contradicting themselves, because God, by definition, has to exist. Um, you know, all those sort of things, I think, can grant a great amount of, uh, you know, uh, helpfulness to us when we are having difficult times. And so, um, from a pastoral level, I use these arguments with my youth group. Um, I, I minister to them and I give them arguments for God's existence, transcendental and classical, and it's been a, it's been a great comfort to many of them. And uh, and yeah, you're right. It, of course, it's a weak faith. We all have weak faith. You know, that's why it says in Mark's gospel, "I believe, but help my unbelief." And so, uh, yeah, I I, I I love general revelation because it helps out my weak faith, and so does special revelation, especially special revelation. And so, I, I yeah, I, I need it. Yeah, I love it, and it really yeah. is helpful for me personally. I have some difficulty with that because I think, according to James, I mean, you would agree that doubt is sinful, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Okay, so doubt is a sin, and I would not elevate the person to the position of judge. You know, like I, you know, I would not elevate them. Let me show you why your doubts don't make sense. And they're at the okay. Then you satisfy their demands to comfort them in their doubts. And I'm saying, look, you know what happens when you doubt? Listen to what you're doubting. You're doubting the truth of something. You're using reasoning to doubt. You're using knowledge to doubt. You're using all these things. You know what all those things assume? All of these things assume God. So when you're doubting God, you're actually assuming God. Rather than saying, okay, I'm going to leave you in that position and say, okay, you're doubting, and I'm going to show you why your doubts are not founded. And I say that you leave that person in that position and you satisfy that demand. And I, and I have difficulty with that. Yeah, and so I guess I would say you're not really... Um, so someone could say, well, the transcendental arguments are just satisfying your demand. And I would say the reason why we, we know that's not the case is because of Romans 1. And I would say, uh, you know, when I'm doing that with people in the group, I'm not really satisfying their demands. I'm actually satisfying what the Scripture says is to show them that they are suppressing the truth and do that through, I, I think the Greek word there suggests deducing, as it's, it's parallel mm-hmm. with uh, Wisdom uh, 13, and also the, with the Greek word for perceive. So it's both immediate and Immediate, and so I think yeah. that those are really just characteristics of what Scripture requires me to do. So I'm really just following Scripture by judging things, judging for myself, testing everything. And like First Kings, you know, saying, "Hey, this is the true God," and it, it gives tremendous courage and help to uh, our faith. So um, that's 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 the way I see it. So I don't really satisfying um, their demands uh, apart from the authorization of God, but it's authorized by God, I think. And Romans 1 and Acts 14 and other places like that. So I think that though, obviously, I mean, Jesus satisfies me and satisfies, you know, me emotionally. Um, not all the time, but because right. it's sinful. 
But um, he, he does that. But it's also authorized by Scripture that he does that. And so I would say the same is true of these arguments, is that they are authorized by God's word, um, deducing arguments. Um, and I would say that, um, that, that, that they're not outside of God's authorization. So I don't think that they can be properly construed as um, helpful or sinful or something like this. Right. I would argue, though, that Romans 1 is not an argument for the existence of God. It's not a court case. It's actually a sentencing. You know, so that Romans 1 is going through these things, because these people are already without excuse. So to say that they're without excuse because of all of this, and now I'm going to use this to convince you that you're without excuse. No, the Bible says they're already without excuse. And that's one thing that I say, you know, let's say I'm about to go witness to somebody, and they get hit by a bus. Does anybody think that they have an excuse when they stand before God because I didn't make it to them in time? I say, no. Of course, they don't have an excuse because they know the God. And I think that my argumentation then with that person must reflect the fact that they know that God, that if they get hit by that bus, that they are going to stand in front of the God that they know exists. And I think that when, when not like I say, I'm open to hearing these arguments formulated in a way that does not deny that case. I've just never heard it. Right, and, and I guess, uh, you know, the Greek word here is rational reflection of thought, and it's paralleled from, um, you know, wisdom eight, uh, eight here. Or, I'm sorry, eight thirteen, and basically this is what wisdom thirteen four through five says, which m- many commentators think to be a parallel that Paul is drawing on uh, from Romans uh, one. It says, and if they have been impressed by the power and energy, power and energy, let them deduce from these how much mightier is He that formed them, since though the grandeur and beauty of the creatures, we may by analogy contemplate their author. But even so, as going down to verse eight, they have no excuse. They are capable of acquiring enough knowledge to be able to investigate the world. How have they been so slow to find its master? And so the Greek word here is used in both cases, and many people draw parallels between these two because Paul was probably drawing on this material, which I believe when he was drawing on it, it's infallible when he was doing it. But the, the Greek word noeo is used here, and it's used for rational reflection of thought and a deducing step by step. Um, and so there, there to me, it sounds like there are deductions going on there and that they that they lean from God's analogy to their creator. And so um, I, to, to me, reading this text and the original languages and looking at it and paralleling it with uh, wisdom in its original language, it just seems pretty clear to me that that's what's being um, thought of here. And um, that's, that would be kind of the reason why I do believe the Bible authorizes this, and some other things, to judge for yourselves, to believers. It says test everything. So to me, biblically, it just seems like that these are totally legitimate moves and uh, therefore, I typically have no problem with uh, the classical arguments. In fact, I think they're authorized by Scripture itself. In, in, Romans, yeah. in Romans chapter 1, do you think that people are um, without excuse because they're capable of knowing that God exists or because they do know that God exists? I think that they are without excuse because every aspect, they're, they're, all, all deductions lead to God and the start of their deductions lead to God immediately and immediately. Right, but are they without excuse because they do know or because they are capable of knowing? Uh, they they do know immediately and, and immediately. Okay, yeah, well, and that's and so I would love to hear these arguments consistent with that claim, and I'm just saying that they don't appear to be. I've never seen William Lang. I mean, I think there's sometimes when he does get presuppositional, but I think more often than not he's just merely concluding. God, some generic, I mean, if you see how to answer the fool, time and time again, he says, I'm not arguing for the Christian God. 
you know, he's arguing for general theism, generic theism, that there is no such thing as a generic God. So when he does that, I'm saying he's arguing for a God that I don't believe in. And I've not seen any one of those arguments formulated so that the conclusion is necessarily the God of the Bible, the Christian God. And I'm saying, you know, not only that, like I said, you're granting the person, you know, the ability to try and conclude this generic God, but I would love to hear that argument formulated in such a way that it is concluding with certainty the God of Christianity. And I don't think any of the people, proponents of these arguments would say that that's the case. I mean, because I have clip after clip of after all of these famous apologists saying that exact thing, that it can take you this far, and then we have to go from there to try and get to the Christian God. Right. Well, I'm with John Frame on this insofar as um, I don't think any argument does that. So if, if that's the standard of we need an argument that conclusively shows that the Trinitarian, you know, the view of God is, is correct and, you know, sola scriptura and all the other elements in one argument, then no argument is going to do that, in which case you you have no apologetic. It just comes down to... No, except for the argument that starts with that. Well, I, in, in which that's case... That's what presuppositionalism that's not, is. Well, uh, yeah, the, the, the version you're espousing it wouldn't seem to be an argument. It would just seem to be an assertion that unbeliever is not going to grant. Right, and then the denial of that, that's the argument. You deny that, and your worldview is absurd. Okay, that, that's, that's what we're getting the meat of this. And looking at this and breaking it down to me, that it, okay, so so it doesn't prove that you're denying specifically the Christian God. You're just asserting that, and so they could just, it, it, at that point, it doesn't really become an argument. As I said before, it just becomes preaching, basically. Well, the thing is, I'm gonna. That's what I, that's what I do as a presuppositionalist. I assert my presupposition, and I say denial of that reduces one to absurdity. Yeah, and 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 it's from my standpoint, being a presuppositionalist, I would say that I presuppose. I, I can show that I, in every argument you presuppose a Christian God. That's what that would I would take to be a presuppositionalist. So we're obviously yeah, that's fine, that and, and that's I agree with discussion. that. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. And I, yeah, and like I say, I would love to see those arguments formulated that way. I've just not seen it. Yeah, and I, I don't think any argument can be formulated that way, and that could that could actually do with the apologetic work other than just reducing to assertions and preaching. Well, like I said, premise one. God is a necessary precondition for intelligibility by the impossibility of the contrary, as revealed in Scripture. Premise two, there is intelligibility. Conclusion, therefore God exists. That's my argument. The God there, you're taking to be the Christian God, right? And so the issue then is, we should have gotten to this earlier, I'm sorry. Wait, cut the end here to do this. Um, But that, so God there being the Christian God, they can say, well, that just proves uh, generic theism because another God could satisfy logic. Well, then they're they're denying the premise. My premise is the God of right. I say, okay, now you say that that's not the case. Fine, fill your boots. What's your, what's your argument? Sure, sure. And they can say, okay, well, show, show that show that premise to be true. And then I would turn to scripture premise. and I would show them. Right. And they, okay, good. So we're there, and that just looks like preaching to me. So it does not really apologize. It's just preaching. You no, that's an argument. It's an argument that I'm using scripture to defend my position. I'm saying it's true because God says it's true right here. Romans 11:36. from him, through him, and to him are all things. That includes my ability to reason. That includes your ability to reason. Yeah, and that's what... Now, if, if you call that preaching, I don't have a problem with that. If you want to call that preaching, that's fine. But I think okay. then denying of the fact that they know that God exists and then arguing with them as though they can reason without God, I think... I think that's the problem. Now, if that means, okay, that's what some people want to do, you know... I don't see the biblical justification for that. That's not what I want to do. I want to do, I want to be consistent with Scripture. And I think that if we're going to do something, if we're going to have some kind of argumentation, it has to be consistent with what Scripture says. And I, like I say, 
I'm open, but I've just not seen it done in a way that's consistent with Scripture. Oh, oh, oh yeah, I, I understand your position there, or at least I think I do. And, you know, from my vantage point is, you know, you want to, I, I want to be able to prove all Christianity and show it that it's true and it's obvious. And I just can't do that, with, you know, especially the book of Esther and Third John. I can't do that unless I invoke evidential uh, methods uh, once I've already established that the general framework for Trinitarian theism is the case. I then move to historical arguments and, you know, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, well, this, this could Bible, be helpful. I, Sorry, go yeah. on. Oh, I'm, I'll, I'll finish up and then I'll let you jump in there. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I would say when I read the Bible itself, attesting, and I know it's true by, on that basis, but it, just showing it true, I would have to give historical arguments for Third John and Esther. Uh, I can't just argue with that in one transcendental premise and prove the whole enchilada. I, and I, frankly, at that point, yeah, I would just seem like preaching, and I, I commend you for preaching God's word. We need more of it, you know, so. Now, as a Calvinist, you would believe that repentance is granted by God, correct? And in Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25, it says that in the hopes that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So I'm saying that the people that I engage must repent of their sin, of their denial of the God they know exists, for any of it to make sense. And what it seems to be that the other type of arguments are trying to do is get people to see the truth so that they repent. When Scripture says, no, 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 they need to repent so they can see the truth. I can win any argument I can with the unbeliever, but if they don't repent first, I'm, you know, it's useless. Yes. Uh, so I'm with Greg Bonson and, uh, against Schaefer. I believe in preaching the gospel first. When objections come, then, then, you, then you bring out the transcendental argument, big guns and the evidence and everything like that, and you show that Christianity is true and that the suppression is going on there. Um, so, yeah, so I, I certainly believe that regeneration precedes faith and the external calling of the gospel. All those things are true, and I believe taught in Scripture in the Westminster Confession. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in the ARP church, would I? Um, well, let's hope I wouldn't be in that church. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so I certainly think that is the case. Um, I, I guess I am interested as, you know, uh, you know, studying the evidence of Christianity as a philosopher is just showing it and uh, the effectiveness of that in evangelism. And obviously I think it has a godly use, provided it's a minister and not a magis, uh, you know, magistrate or has a magisterial use of reason. So that that's kind of where I'm at in terms of that. So I'm interested in what the minister is able to show in terms of evidences and proofs um, you know, I certainly believe in reading the Bible to unbelievers and preaching the gospel to them. And if they uh, offer objections, I'm just going to say, well, the, the Bible is true, you know, and you got to believe it. I would want to offer arguments that actually lead to a conclusion that says, okay, this philosophically proves obvious that Christian God is true, and in doing so, I want to honor God in my reasoning and love the Lord God with all my mind. Um, and I think doing providing good arguments does that. Okay, um... Maybe how long we have left? Fifteen minutes or so. Yeah. Uh, yes, minutes, sir. Yeah. Maybe just uh, for the benefit of the listeners, we can do some role play then. Okay. I'm going to be, you know, and then we could take turns doing this. But I'm the unbeliever, and I say, look, I, I don't, I don't believe in God. How okay. would you talk to me? Yeah. So um, I would offer you a transcendental argument, and I guess you can even offer objections as we go on. So um, do you want me using a classical argument? No, no, I would just so, say, how, how would you, that you would say would be differ, different from how I would engage an unbeliever? I, I don't right, believe in so, God. Okay, well, I, I, I will, obviously, I, at this point, I would preach the gospel to you, and you say, well, I, show me it's true, and I would say, okay. Well, I, I would say um, that you couldn't know uh, anything, and you couldn't have logic, and the reason why, especially for logic, is that um, logic is a uh, is a common thing that human experience with reasoning and arguments at all. Any argument assumes logic, 
And I would say that um, if if you don't have um, God, then you have no logic. But we have logic. It's obvious. We do. And so, um, therefore, God exists. And so I would go there. And then um, let me just be kind of upfront with you here. At this point, I probably, depending on who I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to a philosopher, I'm going to whip out the ontological argument and, and do my thing. If I'm talking to a guy on the street. Um, I'm probably, you know, I've proven a necessary personal being. Okay, and I'm like, we have many re- revelations here. We have many revelations here. You know, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And I would give the, uh, I would say, we've shown that God exists. And um, at this point, I would then go give arguments for the well, resurrection let, of Christ. And then I would show it. that this is the only one that has any historical evidence. And that would be roughly, I mean, it's very similar to a classical apologist move, is I would offer an argument for God's existence right. first. Logic well, let's, or let's from just, let's just, I don't believe in God. Okay, so uh, so I would say then that uh, um, that that if you if you are you an atheist, then let's just. But are you yeah. agnostic or atheist? Yeah, I, atheist? I, I, I don't. I have. I lack God belief. Okay, well, um, I would say that. Okay, so I'll argue the first step for God. I'll use I'll use something more different. I'll I'll kind of be creative about this. Um, so I would say that if you deny that God exists, that basically um, you are um, you're actually contradicting yourself because you're claiming that making a knowledge claim, something you're saying is true, but um, all you are is a moist robot and uh, you're a product of randomness and chance and not by a personal guided uh, uh, being like God who can bring about and, and guide things. And so um, your beliefs, you have no reason to believe anything you say is true. So if your position is true, you couldn't know it's true, and so <laughs> atheism is false by that standard, and so this whole conversation is making sense, so you have to ultimately assume God in this discussion, uh, in any discussion you have, any reasoning, and this shows it. If you reject God, you're in this position, you know? It, right. you're, you're, just a, you're just a biological bag of stuff and guided by the laws of nature and physics, and who knows if your beliefs are true, you're just here for survival. So you can't even know if atheism is true. If atheism is true, and so it's self-reproduction coherent, and so if atheism is false, and theism is true, and so you should embrace uh, theism at this point. And so that's what I would do, okay. and then I would, yeah. Right. Now, that's almost exactly what I would do, almost exactly. And now, so what I'm saying is that, okay, now that that, now, first of all, I've not heard any classical apologists do that. You know, they, they start with their other arguments. So, you know, this is helpful. This is a combination. So I I would do almost exactly that, and, and I have not done it consistently, but I think I would also call the person to repentance. I'm saying when you say that, that you're actually sinning, you know, and I've not done that consistently, but I would do it almost exactly like what you're doing. But now that that being the case, you've shown them, you know, whether they agree with it or not, you show them that God is a necessary precondition for the argumentation. And then what I see in the classical arguments is that people immediately deny what they've just said and say, I've just told you that you need God to rationally think about what, you know, any of this. I've just told you that. And now let's deny that and let's argue about something else. Well, yeah, I, I, w- I would never, so I'd never say all that. I would never deny that. No, no, no I understand. That. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so then I would be preaching to them, but I mean, if we're talking about showing Christianity is true, then I would go to these steps. I mean, obviously no, okay. you would assume I would I'd preach throughout this whole, you know, discussion. No, um, right. Yeah, and, but you and just so, talked I mean, to I, the unbeliever. You just came out with that, and like I say, that's almost exactly what I would do. And then the guy says, "Well, you're nuts. I just don't believe that." And now you would go into another argument, and I'm saying that in doing that, you would be denying what you just said. Now, I'm, oh, okay, the thing is, okay. I'm I'm in a position where will I will argue evidences with unbelievers, and I will preface it 
with the fact, look, I will talk about this, but you have to understand you're borrowing from my worldview when we talk about this. And then if you want to formulate those type of arguments, I have no problem with that. I think that's fine, but I think we need to preface it with that. And, you know, because what I've seen more often than not is not only do, does no classical apologist I've ever seen preface it with a, a transcendental type argument, you know, they go immediately into this type of argument where I think they already grant those things that uh, the presuppositions would deny. Yeah, and so for me, I mean, I would, at that point, what I've done in the apologetic encounter is I get them to recognize that God, God exists um, as I'm preaching to them and talking. I'm preaching and I'm, and I'm giving apologetics. And they go well, you're a lot better than I can because I, I can't get anybody to admit that. That's to work uh, I've, I've gotten, <laughs> you know, well, I've gotten people to admit that God exists and tell, yeah, that's I've, I've gotten that gotten that before, yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I mean, oh, you're saying, oh, obviously I can't do it. Yeah, obviously God is the one who, I, I got you. Okay, I just missed that. <laughs> um, um, sure, theologically that that's very true. Um, so in terms of, I would preach them in the, uh, the, once God brought them to the conclusion that yes, God exists, um, then I then I would then I would show them this is why Christianity is the only reasonable worldview. Um, look at this evidence and so on. That if they're being obstinate and difficult at step one, I'm not going to move to step two. And that's kind of what makes me similar to a classical apologist. Is I have a step method. I don't I, I don't I don't agree with Gary Habermas uh, in just offering just evidences. I think they'll misinterpret the evidences. I think you have to first establish a, roughly a Christian theistic framework by which you can get evidences in the first place, because after all, the unbeliever, like your friend you were saying, could be smart and saying, well, you know, Jesus resurrected from the dead, but, you know, maybe an alien did it, or maybe he was a magician, right. you know, stuff like that. So um, that would be kind of my, my vantage point. I would first establish a Christian theistic context and say, okay, yeah, okay, so once God exists, he's a God of logic, and he's um, he's he is morally perfect, and so you're granting that basically right. the greatest possible being exists. And say, okay, yeah, the greatest possible being exists, and so I would use uh, Craig's argument that um, it's better to have self-giving, it's God's the greatest possible being, he'll have every attribute that's better to have rather than the lack, and so I would right. go down that route, and I would I would then justify um the members of the Trinity at that point, I would say, well, right. you know, it's better to have self-giving love, love for another person, rather than having only selfish love, and so that's a better attribute to right. have rather than not, and so um, there, well, there, there is at least... Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, I think this is very beneficial, you know. I, I think that a lot of times the way those arguments are formulated, they deny the fact that these people actually know that God exists, but could you... Just out of curiosity, because you said that you think you're a different breed, that you have some kind of mix. Do you know anybody else, any of the classical apologists that you can cite that do that, that start off with a transcendental type argument and then go to their classical type arguments? Can you name one? Well, uh, actually, Devin might actually be okay with that on some level. He might start with them and then go to that. Uh, and what was his say? Oh, we were talking about him um, Borrowing from God, uh, Devin, what's his name? Help me out here. Um, yeah, Frank Turk. Uh, Dr. Frank Turk, right, Stealing from God. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Frank Turk, so, his, his recent book, my, my friend read it, and I guess it's a quite presuppositional. I heard his radio show since his book came out, and I think that he maybe understood it for the purpose of writing the book, and I'm really thankful that he seems to be going that way. But, um, I mean, we also use him as an example in the film, if, if you've seen the film or not, I'll have to send you a copy of it. But you know when oh, he says we're going to do all this and we're not, and we're not going to use the Bible to do it, you know I think that that's problem. That's not starting with our assumption of God, and so 
you know, maybe he does now. But like I say, I've heard his show since, and I've heard people call into the show, and he doesn't seem to do that. But if that is the, yeah, the way I'm, that I'm, this I'm, argumentation is type going, I think fantastic. Yeah, I'm good, I'm yeah, good friends um, with, so, with Frank. Oh, good. Yeah, it, Maybe and, we and, can you know, talk it, sometime. It, 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 do you know what? You could do me a favor. Do me a yeah. favor. Yeah. Ask Frank if he's seen any of my stuff, because uh, a friend of mine, uh, he read his book, and he said that he recognized some of the arguments that he's only heard myself and, and him use in some of our debates. So uh, as far as I know, Frank Turk is the only apologist that uh, we cited in the film who knows he's in the film. Because uh, I, I know somebody who actually mentioned it to him, and I guess he wasn't too pleased at the time. And I don't know whether he has uh, actually seen, looked at any of our stuff. I'd really be curious to know whether that's the case. Yeah, I'll, I can. I'll, I will definitely talk with him, and, and I would love to even try and, uh, you know, if he's willing, I can't speak for him, but to to set up a, a discussion on that because I think he does uh, represent, um, you know, the classical method. So can I can I ask you a question? Um, sure. Just I thought about this as I watched your stuff. One of the problems, uh, as you brought out, you say you have with uh, kind of the classical method is when you're when you're giving arguments and the person is saying, um, you know, basically they don't believe in God. If you give arguments, you're putting this person as the judge, etc. What if you what if we view the role of apologetics not as just the evangelism, but as demolishing a, a claim? So, for example, I, I uh, am a chapter director with Ratio Christie at Winthrop University. And so say one of our students is in the astronomy class uh, and the professor says uh, the universe is eternal and therefore you don't need God to exist. And so one of our students gets up and gives the Kalam cosmological argument uh, and argues therefore you have to have some type of external cause, right? Um, that kind of a position, you're just demolishing the person's claim, right? It's not putting them... Is as neutral. It's not saying that they're the judge. It's just taking their claim and demolishing it. Um, do you yeah, think, think classical Bonson, apologetics can work like that? Well, I think Bonson uh, cited that as one of his uses of evidence is to embarrass unbelievers with their ridiculous claims. He says that okay. one is one of the uses of, of evidence. But I think more often than not, it goes too far in granting the unbeliever things that they cannot have. Now, it depends on on the, the situation, too, because I was in a debate, you know, not too long ago on Apology Radio, and they were gone into the topic of morality, and he, the fellow said, you know, well, we don't have perfect morality. This is the atheist fellow, so we don't have perfect morality. Now, I don't really discuss morality, because I say you need logic, you need knowledge, you need all these things to even talk about morality, but since the argument started there, I showed him the absurdity of his statement, and I asked him, I said, um, you said that we don't have perfect morality. He said, yeah. I said, well, what is perfect morality? He said, I don't know. I said, then how do you know we don't have it? You know, so at that point, I, right. I demolished the, the absurdity. But I've also seen it be the case, you know, where people talk about uh, rate carbon dating or something like that. Somebody says, well, the Earth is millions of years old. Carbon dating or showed us that. And then the person responds with, well, actually, carbon only has a half-life of so many thousands of years. It can't measure things into millions of years. It can only measure thousands of years. And they happen to be talking about some expert in dating. He says, well, I wasn't really talking about carbon dating. I was talking about radiometric dating with a different half-life. And now you're in, in, in an evidential debate when you grant the person something that they can't have. So I think, you know, if there's a place that you can demolish your argument, sure, do that quickly and then get right to their foundations. But I definitely think there's a place for it. Okay. Good deal. Well, uh, so I take uh, 30 seconds, wrap us up, then Nate, you take 30 seconds, and we'll close it out. 
Well, I really appreciate this uh, conversation. It's nice to meet another ARP brother. I hope to be able to make it down and actually meet in person sometime. And this is what I would encourage. For people that disagree with my argumentation, do me a favor. Buy a cheap recorder. Go talk to an unbeliever. Record the conversation and send it to me. You know, I would love to hear that because, you know, as much as people think that I'm being facetious, I want to learn. I want to know the best way to reach unbelievers for the Lord that I adore. You know, I want to exalt Jesus Christ in my apology. And if I'm doing something wrong, I want people to show me. And um, and I really appreciate the time. I appreciate you having us on, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, uh, give us your website, Cy, where we can find your stuff. It's www.proofthatgodexistswithans.org. Proofthatgodexists.org, and you can see the different films you've done, and there's links to be able to purchase them as well. Nate, take 30 seconds. Sure. Well, I've appreciated our time, and I hope it would be beneficial and useful to other believers who are listening in and thinking about apologetics and how to do it biblically and faithfully, because we all want to glorify God in our minds and in our lives, and I, I hope and pray that uh, this discussion would be useful in, uh, in that end. All right, brothers. God bless you guys both. Appreciate you both coming on, and uh, maybe looking forward to a, a discussion with Dr. Turek and and Cy, I'll try and try and set something up there. But uh, God bless you guys, and have a great uh, Thanksgiving. All right, great. You thanks well. very much. God bless you all. American Thank Thanksgiving. You. We've had ours already. Yeah, American <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> all right, God bless. All right, bye-bye.